boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, lads and lasses, and those that don't subscribe to your gender. Welcome to GOT Guy Questions Podcast with Spencer and Lee. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. So, today on the GOT Guy Questions Podcast, we are continuing our coverage of Season 1. Today, we are on Season 1, Episode 5. We are midway through Season 1, Spencer. We're getting there. How you doing? I am overjoyed because we have reached... We, have, we are starting very much to climb the mountain, and it is already getting exciting. <laughs> oh, it's so great. All right, so this is uh, episode five, uh, titled The Lion and the Wolf. Uh, we're going to go through it today. Uh, if you're new to the podcast, we have a pretty standard um, uh, way we approach this podcast. We do a recap. Then we do a little bit of a best line of the episode. I decide that because I'm emperor best line. And then we go to book nerd bitching. Spencer, our certified card-carrying book nerd. Uh, talks about, you know, scenes or uh, parts of the plot uh, that are different in the book, and he complains about them. Spencer, anything you want to add before we get into the recap? Just to point out that even book nerd bitching is, of course, subject to subject to your whim, Sahib. That's right. Uh, Spencer does usually provide me, I don't know, we haven't talked about this, he'll provide me four or five different potential book nerd bitching topics. I pick three. So yet again, I'm emperor. I, you know, I have a lot of sway over this podcast, Spencer. You, you do indeed. And you, we felt when we were originally planning this out that it wouldn't be a proper showing of our relationship unless we added in my disappointment. So it was a nice addition to really encapsulate things there. <laughs> you make me feel so good. Yeah. Uh, Terry, uh, Lee, it, it wouldn't be no, it wouldn't be like a normal conversation with you if I'm not disappointed in you. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's how it needs to go down. It just you need to be disappointed, and I need then need to become disappointed myself, and then we just go from there. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get going. Before we get in the recap, I do want to point out that you know I watch the uh, I don't know how you watch the show, Spencer, but I watch it on HBO Go, mm-hmm. uh, and you know you you pull up the app and you you sort of scroll to the individual uh, episode, and for season one, episode five, The Lion and the Wolf. There's a little screen cap, right? Like as you go to it, like there's just a, a shot of something that goes on in the episode uh, before you click into it and you get going. And for this one, it's Jamie pointing a dagger at Jora's Jory's eye, and I was like, "Well, that's like a fucking like I understand that this started eight like eight years ago, but that's a hell of a spoiler for this episode, right?" It, it just a bit, yeah. It. That is a very, very late in the episode moment that kind of sets where the rest of the series is going to go from here. So the fact they're advertising that is, hey, you want to find out about Game of Thrones is probably not the first foot they want to set forward. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Well, then we go to the uh, opening sequence and the flashback. Nothing to report here. Spencer, anything in the opening sequence or flashback you want to touch? Not really, no. I'm I'm eager to jump into the meat of this one because there's so much here. Okay, so we start in King's Landing, and Ned is visiting the corpse of Sir Hugh of the Vale, which if you didn't cover our last, uh, or listen to our last episode, or watch the last episode, you should, so go back and do it. But uh, Sir Hugh of the Vale uh, died during attorney joust with the mountain. Ned and uh, Barristan Selmy, who is the Lord Commander of the King's Guard, are talking, um, and just kind of talking and, and and ned you know as we've talked about on this podcast spencer i think ned is um more uh concerned about sir hugh of the veil more um he has more of suspicion about him than maybe he should uh and they start to walk away and barristan says something along the lines of well i hear the king is wanting to fight today <laughs> and ned completely dismisses it uh he says that's not happening uh and he says this line which i'm i mean right out the gate spencer boom 
potential best line of the episode. If the king got what he wants all the time, he'd still be fighting the damn rebellion. <laughs> I like this scene a lot because it's really the first, one of the first and only times we get to see Ned and Barristan interact. Uh, and they are just two people out of the same mold in, different, uh, in their own ways of where Barristan is so damn honorable that he recognizes that Sir Hugh of the Vale has no one in the city, no family, what else to care for him, and so stands vigil the entire night just because nobody else is there willing to do it. Um, and as the two of them are talking, they just are kind of, you know, just casually commenting on each other's mutual abilities. And I love Ned's little quote there. It's been one of the ones I nominate is, I'm glad we never met on the field, Sir Barristan, as is my wife. I don't think the widow's life would have suited her. And Barrison just chuckles and just says, eh, you killed a lot of knights yourself. We're good. It's just a wonderful banter between two individuals that have never really had a chance to interact, but seem like they'd be pretty close if they were able to spend more time together. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but I would like to point out that, um, you know, we don't know how well Ned can fight. Um, At this point, no. I wouldn't, no, and, but we do find out in this episode. And <laughs> when you're listening to this, uh, at least for me, the first time I listened or watched this, I thought, well, you know, Barrison is just being nice to Ned. Here. Yeah, a polite thing um, to say. Ah, uh, yeah, but you know, once you kind of <laughs> watch the rest of the season, I think Barrison actually is being honest. I think he's saying, "Well, I don't know, dude, you can fight," because he can. Uh, anything else with this conversation? No, it's just as you said, it's Ned very much continuing to be led down the rabbit hole that Sir Hugh of the Vale was relevant because, again, Littlefinger has placed him on that path so that he will get wrapped up in the whole Lannister conspiracy that really doesn't exist in the way he thinks it does. No, it doesn't. Uh, so you cut to Ned. He is visiting King Bobby B uh, in his tent, which is uh, obviously near the tournament. Uh, and Lancel Lannister, who is the king's squire, is trying to get the armor on the king. Uh, can't get it in. Uh, and the king is really giving Lancel shit here. Having fun uh, He's complaining... <laughs> And Ned finally crosses his arms, look up, looks up and says, you're too fat for your armor. Uh, <laughs> uh, finally, the king starts laughing. Um, and uh, he he's just tormenting Lancel here. Mm -hmm. uh, and he says, you heard the king. Are you, you Sorry, you heard the hand. The king is too fat for his armor. Go find the breastplate stretcher. Uh, obviously, there's no such thing. <laughs> Not that Lancel knows that. Uh, and then Ned tells King Bobby B, look, if you join the joust or you join the fight, you'll win by default. Nobody is ever going to risk hurting you, which pisses the king off. He says, piss on that. I want to hit somebody. But you can't. Uh, then the king kind of gets sort of contemplative. Uh, he forces a drink on Ned. Seems a bit sad that he's too fat for his armor uh, once he kind of settles down and he's not performing. Uh, he does a little tidbit here which becomes important later in the series he does say that cersei insisted that lancel uh be the king's squire mm -hmm. uh and then in a little bit of contemplative uh dialogue the king says i thought being king meant i could do whatever i wanted uh anything else here no before we get into the end of the scene yeah it's just very clear and plain that Robert very much longs for the days of old. He very much longs for the simplicity that's just no longer possible as he's king. And he laughs it off. He's constantly busting the balls of everybody around him. But he's clearly very unhappy. Yeah, he is. And that comes up many times in this episode. Uh, so the king gets up. 
uh, he gets to leave and he starts to leave and Ned says, ah, uh, Robert, <laughs> he turns around. Uh, he does not have his armor on. He has a shirt on, his belly sticking out. He starts laughing. He goes, inspiring sight. Bow before your king. Bow, you shits. You know, I didn't realize before we started. Just yet again, him. Sorry. It's yet again, him making fun of the fact that he's not the guy that he used to be or probably wants to be. And I'm also now realizing as we're going into this, that essentially King Robert's going to be a third member of this podcast with how many wonderful quotes he has in this episode. Oh, it's going to be a lot. I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I'm getting the, the voice ready. Uh, okay. <laughs> we cut back and we go to the joust uh, and Ned joins Sansa. Uh, Arya's not there. She's at her dancing lessons uh, on brand for Arya. She really is enjoying that. Mm -hmm. And we have Sir Loris, the Knight of the Flowers. Spencer, do you want to talk about Sir Loris? Give a little background to the listeners? Uh, well, it is Sir Loris in the books versus Sir Loris in the show. I'll try to give some rough co combination of the two. Sir Loris is uh, a young knight of House Tyrell, of, of, of uh, whom we meet Marjorie in later seasons, the ruling family of uh, the Reach from their seat in Highgarden. Uh, they're one of the most powerful families, second only to the Lannisters in wealth, and quite possibly more powerful when it comes just to raw resources that they can bring to bear. He is, depending on your medium, either the oldest uh, male heir of the family or the second in line, uh, actually the third in line. Um, he is famously skilled as a tourney knight. He's incredibly skilled with the lance. He's a very skilled horseman. His reputation when it comes to actually combat is non-existent because he is very much of this generation of summer that has no real experience of what war is. And as we see over the course of this episode, he has a decidedly romantic and simplistic view of what a all-encompassing, world-changing war would require and what the costs of it might be. He is very much a child playing with tools that are beyond his understanding. Well, <clears throat> that's show Loris. <laughs> I'm not sure book Loris is the same way, right? Uh, there is an element of it for book Loris, too. I mean, book Loris is very much in love. Well, both of them are very much in love with Renly. Uh, the particular motivation. Well, yeah. The, the particular motivations of Loris uh, in the books are a little bit less obvious. It's implied that it may actually be Loris's family that are much more motivating this than he himself. And that his main motivations for going about what he does are loyalty and belief in Rinley and in his cause, rather than the kind of political ambition that we see at play later on in this episode, which is more the female side of his family and, notably, his father, Mace Tyrell. Yeah, sure. Well, then they line up. And Spencer, I'm going to talk about Sir Loris Tyrell a lot in this episode, because I feel like the deviation between uh, the Loris Tyrell of the books and the show is particularly problematic it is in um, a lot of ways. isn't the build isn't the build of sor loris and his ridiculous armor doesn't it undercut <laughs> the badass that is loris tyrell in the books well i mean we know that loris tyrell is indeed a badass in the books but we we at this stage don't necessarily know what he's capable of when push comes to shove we I mean, loris tyrell in the books is not indeed the quite fop that he comes across in this way but he is still mostly attorney fighter, and that is where most of his reputation lies. And there's a lot of debate early on whether he could actually hold up in a duel with blood and to the death or whatever else. But yes, they are. the show is really much emphasizing the idea that he is a larger-than-life, flamboyant kind of personality. And they, starting here and continuing on later, make that the only focus of his character. Yeah, I just felt like the build wasn't fair. Because in the books, I mean, yeah, okay, he might be a knight who is of the summer and he's, you know, 
only used to, you know, tourneys or whatnot, but he's still billed as like, he's a, he's a unit, right? And this this actor that they've picked for Sir Loris Tyrell is like a little string bean. Well, and they also picked that same thing for Rinley too, despite the fact they describe Rinley in the books as being very much in the mold of young Robert, that he's massively built, he's incredibly tall, he's a very skilled tournament fighter. That's not uh, what well. they went for for either of these guys for reasons we can discuss. Ah, yeah, if you're gay, you're effeminate and skinny. Okay, um... Sadly, so, that seems uh, to be the stereotype they're going with, and it's disappointing absolutely. that they went, they went that way. It sucks. Uh, so <clears throat> they line up, and Littlefinger bets 100 gold dragons with Rinley on the mountain. Um, <laughs> Spencer, you are the, uh, <laughs> the person who knows the currency of Westeros. 100 gold dragons? I love that they're just throwing these mats about. It just, again, shows what incredibly how incredibly removed these guys are from the life of the average person that's a lot of money that they're just going "Eh, i'll bet on that guy sure you know pocket change (laughs) it's like a charles barkley bet (laughs) yeah pretty much uh okay uh and uh (laughs) renly gets off a pretty good line he says that with if he wins the bet uh, Littlefinger could even buy a friend. Uh, Sansa is worried about Sir Loras after Sir Loras comes by and nonchalantly gives uh, Sansa a rose. Now, this is a rose that he gives before the joust now in Westerosi lore. Spencer, is there another time that someone about to joust has given a rose to somebody in the audience uh, and it been a big deal? I remember it hap- if we're referring to the moment of uh, uh, Rhaegar and Lyanna, is that what we're talking we about? Are- that would be after, yep. that would be after the joust of when he'd won the crown of love and beauty and was giving it out. But Loris is very, almost seemingly intentionally tying back to that moment, and the fact he picks out the one Stark in the audience to do this to is. I'm sure that some people are looking at this going, "The fuck are you trying to say, dude? Come on now." Now, you pro- right? I agree with you, but but in later episodes. <laughs> remember when Sansa's walking with Sir Loras through the gardens yeah. in King's Landing and he doesn't even remember he did it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, part of the reason he's giving a rose, too, is it's the emblem of his house. And I also love, as we said about him not knowing it later, is that even when he's giving her the rose, he's not even looking at her. He's looking straight at Renly and smiling. And Renly gives him a look like, dude, stop looking at me. Like, <laughs> you're being obvious here. There's, there's people <laughs> watching. Hold on a minute. All right, well, Sansa's worried about Sir Loras, as she should be, because he's riding against the mountain, and Ned tries to reassure her. He says, Sir Loras rides well. Mm-hmm. They charge. Loras hits the mountain, and he falls. Now, before this happens, the mountain's horse is bucking and kicking yeah. and raising sand hell. Starting to shy. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, Littlefinger jumps up. Um, uh, <laughs> he's clearly not happy. Uh, and Renly says, Such a shame, Littlefinger. Be so nice if you had a friend, Littlefinger, with a ca- strong counterpunch. And tell me, Lord Ridley, will you be having your friend? Now, my question for you, Spencer: People heard this, oh, right? Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Like, I mean, d- does everybody know? And this is another kind of change from the books because a lot of people read the books and had no idea that Ridley and Loras were gay. It's not exactly subtext; it's there, but it's not the open secret in court that everybody's kind of betraying it on in the show. A lot of people right. know about it. I mean, hell, even Jamie and Jamie and uh, Stannis tell jokes about it to them. But this seems like it's a much more worst kept secret in court kind of situation that I think the books were necessarily going for. I just feel like like Littlefinger's comment was, 
daringly open and, for something that the show is portraying as a secret. And Renly looks concerned about it. He starts looking around like, "What? who heard that? Who, who, who do I need to buy off right now? Um, but yeah, he, that was a very good counterpunch by um, by Littlefinger. And can I also just credit again how much more I like Littlefinger's accent in the first season than the weird Irish pirate that he becomes later on? <laughs> you don't like the... Tommy <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree with you. <laughs> so, this actor's great. He, he's the guy from The Wire. He's great, but I don't know what got into him in about season four or five onward, but it was uh, not good. Yeah, this nice, subtle, smarmy, silky accent's perfect for him. And he went, I don't know who directed him to go elsewhere later on, but whatever. <laughs> so uh, Littlefinger then tells Sansa, hey, uh, Sir Loris uh, has a mare that is in heat. Uh, he knew that, and that's why the the mountain's horse was bucking and kicking and going crazy and was not disciplined. Now, the mountain also know this, knows this because after he loses, he screams for his sword. Uh, some squire, poor squire, who's scared for his life, just runs up to give him his sword. <laughs> and he cuts his horse's head off, basically. I mean, he gets about three quarters of the way through. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is unforgivable, Spencer. Like, of all of the mountain's crimes... I mean, what you just what this this horse was simply in heat, and you cut him, cut his head off, you fucking monster! This guy's killed a lot of children. You remember this, right? I mean, I know it's yeah, not just, great. I don't know. But... I felt bad for that horse. <laughs> I really felt bad for the horse. I, I didn't like it. I get, I, I get that, but maybe we're overemphasizing this crime compared to some of the things he's done in the past. I mean, this guy's kind of a legendary child murderer and rapist, so maybe a little bit worse than horse than horse murder. Yeah, but that horse murder is not good. And then he attacks Sir Loris. Uh, now, here's a, yet another a time where I feel like Show Loris and Book Loris are different. Now, I do not think that Book Loris could beat the mountain. Mm -hmm. But I do think that Book Loris wouldn't have been just on the ground begging and not putting up a fight. Like, Book Loris would have at least hit back. I mean, Book Loris is pretty overcome by the moment, too. I mean, this guy's a literal force of nature. He's practically not even human. But he was starting to get in a position to at least try to defend himself. But in either case, the the, the Knight of Flowers has a knight in shining armor, and it comes in the form, the unexpected form of the Hound. That's right. So um, <laughs> the mountain's attacking Loris, and, and Loris in the show is like, yeah, stab it, please. And he stands no chance. Uh, and uh, <laughs> the Hound screams, leave him be! And the Hound jumps in, and he stops the mountain from hitting Loris. Why does he do this, Spencer? Do you think it's because he thinks that what the mountain is doing at this point is just unjust? Or is it because he's like, this is my chance? I, I, I'm a couple minds about this. I mean, I think there is a certain sense of honor about the hound. I think there is also desire that he be the one that eventually kills the mountain. I think there's also a sense of this is once again the mountain picking on somebody weaker than him, abusing somebody that he can't. Somebody that is that he views as you know lesser than him, and the entire world is watching and doing nothing. I think there's a sense of his own sense of betrayal that is kind of motivating him to action here as well. Yeah, I agree. Uh, he jumps in, um, and uh, this is I think <laughs> isn't this uh, Spencer? You tell me. You're plugged into the fandom. Isn't this something that the fandom wants in season eight? The fandom has been, be it on the show. Now, what do they call it? Clegane Bowl. I mean, 
between show mm-hmm. and books, people have been hyped for the idea of Clagane Bowl for just friggin' years. It has been a all-encompassing battle cry of expectation from the fandom. That's never going to happen, but they're still hopeful. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I Well, actually, I don't agree. I do think it might happen. Um, show or books? But... Show or books? Show? Show, show, show only. Yeah. yeah uh, sure. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because and unless they like meet on the battlefield when they're trying to put down Cersei's forces in season eight, I can't really see in a situation where it happens is literally a, a Clegane bowl the way the family hopes for. Where the fandom yeah, no, so I, I think I think it's going to do exactly what you said. I mean, I think that that you know, I think that the Stark forces and the Targaryen forces are going to win uh, the battle of the night uh, with the Night King in season or episode three, and then I think you're going to get a battle with uh, the Golden Company and Cersei's forces probably in episode five, uh, and then we might get Clegane Bowl. But anyway, these two are fighting, uh, and I I don't know who's really getting the better of who. Uh, they they seem to be kind of parrying each other's blows. I, I love how- even though the mountain is is significantly larger than the hound i love how weighty this duel comes across too this is really a battle of titans in terms of how heavy the movement looks until how strong the swings and everything else are and as you say though the mountain and again the casting on this on the mountain is so perfect in season one this guy is a bear of a barbarian man and he they're just swinging each other and the hound despite noticeably being smaller is keeping seemingly seems more mobile and is using that to his advantage but they're holding each other off and everybody's just kind of watching paralyzed as it happens until can you get your Robert accent down for this one? Yeah. yeah. Everybody's watching, including King Bobby B and he seems kind of like mesmerized oh, by yeah. this fight until he figures out, Holy shit, I need to stop this. He goes, stop this madness in the name of your King. Perfect. Perfect. Love the growl. Let the mountain go. <laughs> and uh, the hound drops. Uh, the mountain does not. And he walks off and King Bobby B says, let him go. Now, my question for you, why does he do this? Why does he let the mountain go? Is it just the, the simple logistics of, well, nobody could stop it? Been uh, two things here. One, I love the little uh, kneel move that the, that the hound does to dodge the last sword swing. That's just wonderfully done. But in terms of Robert's instructions, I think it's an even mix of, okay, do I want to lose half the King's Guard trying to make a point out of this while at the same time essentially arresting my lead, my lead noble supporters, lead bannerman. Okay, let's just put a pin on this one until I can think about it for later. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the big thing is that, you know, the mountain is... <laughs> he's uh, he's he's uh, Tywin's bannerman. Yeah, he, he's Tywin's bannerman, and he's big and he's pissed. Neither of those mean let's confront this now and in public. Right. Okay. Anything more you want to uh, talk about in this sequence? Uh, just one other thing I loved. Uh, when Littlefinger is going to tell you know Sansa and Ned about the little trick Dolores pulled, he puts his, his hand on Sansa's shoulder. And when Ned looks over, he looks at the hand. He spends most of his time looking at Littlefinger's hand before looking it up, up at him with daggers. Just like, take the hand off now. You're touching my daughter don't, here. Don't touch her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we cut to the King's Road. And Catelyn, Sir Roderick, Tyrion, and Bronn, and Catelyn's guards uh, stop. Uh, if you remember from the last episode, Catelyn has taken Tyrion her prisoner. And uh, they take Tyrion off a horse, his head is covered. And Tyrion asks to be untied. Catelyn says no. And in a bit of irony, Tyrion says he's no risk to flee because the Hilt Tribe and Shadow Cats would kill him. And Cat says, 
Hill tribes and shadow cats are the least of your concern, which is true for about the next 30 seconds. Yeah, pretty much that. <laughs> Tyrion looks around. He figures out they're not going north. They're going east. Uh, and he pieces together that cat, yeah, in a, in a bit of strategery here, <laughs> is, is uh, taking uh, Tyrion to the Eyrie, which I would think the Lannister forces would not expect. They probably are, are monitoring the King's Road going north. A credit credit to Tyrion's innate sense of geography, because within about 30 seconds of being de-hooded, he looks around and goes, we're not going north, we're getting off the King's Road, we're not in the Riverlands, we're in the Vale, we're going to see your, your sister. And everybody else is around us going, huh, we wanted to keep this secret for another five minutes. Right, shouldn't have given this this much information to the imp already, damn it. Very smart, yeah. Tyrion, Tyrion's bright. Um <laughs> Cat again uh, starts to insist. Uh, well, no, hold on. There's this great moment where he goes, "We're going to see your sister." She goes, "Yes." And he goes, "She? Have you seen her recently?" And Cat's like, "No." He goes, "She's changed," which also is hilarious to me. Like Tyrion at this point in the series has like almost perfect information. Like he knows how Lysa Aaron, which is Cat's um, sister, which was John Aaron's wife, her mental state more. Than Cat, her her sister does like that's infer- that's interesting. Do you think? I mean, I I think A has better information because he's in the information network of the South in a way that Catelyn isn't. He's also probably just seen her more recently, given that he's probably been to King's Landing where she's been a lot more often than Cat has been. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. See, so I kind of thought that 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 Lysa flipped her lid when John Aaron died. But knowing what we know about how John Aaron died in later seasons, uh, I don't think that was particularly emotionally traumatic for her. No, I th- being as she did it, I think it was her series of miscarriages and you know not being in a very loving relationship over the last ten, over the last seventeen years that has just driven her f- slowly up and created increasingly off the deep end. Lisa, we've well, seen that. Go ahead. I said the Lisa we see now did not come about as a result of a single instant. It has come rough from years of mental turmoil. Yeah, she's also like probably a little bit like naturally nuts, but Kat yeah. does not like that it seems that Tyrion knows more than her. So she immediately jumps back to, you're a murderer, you tried to kill my son. And Tyrion is like, what the hell? Like, I did not do this. And Kat says, well, the blade that, you know, was used to try to kill my son was your blade. And he, Tyrion, drops this line, which is potential line of the episode. What sort of imbecile arms an assassin with his own blade? Sir Roderick says, should I gag him? And Tyrion looks and says, why? Am I starting to make sense? Peak Tyrion here. Wonderful exchange. Definitely a a best line nominee. And I also love Kat's face when he says this, of where there's a moment, there's a flash of realization going, didn't think of that. That's a really good point. You're reading off my notes. You're reading off my notes because (laughs) I said peak Tyrion here. You want to know the very next thing I wrote? What'd you write? And you can see it shakes Kat a bit. Yeah. (laughs) So I completely agree. I noticed that too. It really kind of, she was like, whoa, all right. Yeah, he is starting to make sense. I find it interesting as well that when he's saying his case here, he doesn't say, it's not my dagger. And it isn't. We know it isn't. But I think it's a stronger argument that he makes here rather than just doing the kind of self-serving denial of, well, it isn't my blade. Because that just doesn't work as an argument. What he does say is really compelling. Yeah, I agree. Uh, And then some hill tribesmen. Is that the right way to term that? Yeah. I think so. They attack, and they seem to be throwing something like that looks like rocks, yeah. like attached to a rope. Yeah, they, I think I think they're literally having slingers in the heel and the hills that are just kind of slinging rocks at them. So they attack. 
So, um, you know, shout out to uh, Tyrion. He knows that that's, <laughs> that's actually a threat. Cat didn't think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sir Roderick and Bran are Bronn. Uh, snap into action. And this is the first time you see Braun fight. And boy, oh boy, can he. Oh, God. And my my, <laughs> my suggestion, to, uh, suggestion to you, Spencer, is, you know, Tyrion, he's worried here. He's hiding. But I think he files away how well Braun can fight. Yeah, I think he really does. He seems to be watching it very intently as Braun goes through, like, four of these guys like a freaking thresher. I mean, he is just wailing through them effortlessly. Uh, while the rest of the knights are kind of holding their ground, Bronn is murdering. Even Sir Roderick takes uh, takes a bit of a hit. I think he gets slashed on his back. Yeah, he, uh, but there, yeah, he, he does a good account for himself, but he definitely takes a na- nasty slash. And we'll get to it, but I, the actor who plays Sir Roderick is great for the few scenes that he's in, and I just love the adrenaline face he puts on after that battle's over. So during the chaos, Tyrion runs over to Cat and has to be untied. He says, if I die, what's the point? Mm-hmm. Another solid fucking Koja point from Tyrion. Yep. So she unties him, slashes his rope. Um, and as an attacker closes in on Cat, Tyrion uses a shield to knock him down and then smash his head in. Mm-hmm. Again and again and again. And I posit this to you, Spencer, uh, as someone who hasn't killed anybody. I'm pretty sure you probably have. It's realistic for someone who has not killed someone before, right? You like you have to make sure he's dead. Like it's a it's a very human moment they portray. Oh yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's the honest advice they give to people about using weapons is that if you actually have to use a weapon against another person, keep using it until they stop moving. And this is essentially the, the decision that Tyrion's making here up there. I don't really know what it takes to kill somebody. I'm going to keep hitting until I'm sure. Yeah. So <clears throat> with the help of mostly Bronn, but a little bit Sir Roderick and a wee bit Tyrion. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, Tyrion saves Catelyn's life there. Straight up. Catelyn should like recognize that, but she doesn't because she's of the North. Bronn <laughs> uh, comes over to Tyrion after he's just banged this guy's head and he says, you're first. Tyrion nods. He says, you need a woman. Nothing like a woman after a fight. He looks up. Well, I'm willing if she is. Yeah. Potential line of the episode yeah. is talking about cat. And, and, and Bra- <laughs> Bron just starts laughing. And that's pretty much the starting of their relationship is with a sex joke. And it's just hilarious because it sets the tone going wow. forward. So great. But I do love the fact that you are starting to, and it, it becomes, it never gets like very serious, right? But it, it does progress a little bit. Cat's respect for Tyrion. Mm-hmm. It, um, it I think in that moment, she realizes like, He's not quite like all the Lannisters. Now, now she's not ready to just dismiss it and let him go free. But I do think she recognizes he's not quite like Jamie or Cersei Lannister. Yeah, very much so. I think he has given her a perspective on himself that she previously lacked. Um, where the scope of his knowledge, the nature of his character being a lot different than the typical Lannister minds that she's imagined it could be. Um, she's left this scene... A very, from a very, very different starting point than she was going into it with. Um, yeah, agreed. All right, anything else with the scene? How many knights do they have standing by the time we're done? I mean, they beat off the hill tribes bad. They successfully defeat this, this attack upon them. But a lot of the knights look like they're down on the ground by the end of this. I think they only have three or four left. I mean, they, I, mean I, I think, yeah. It seems like a few were standing up and a few were injured. But other than Bronn, pretty much all of them took a hit. So whatever they got left, they're riding injured to the uh, onto the uh, Erie. Yeah, agreed. All right, we cut to Winterfell, and Maester Lewin is reviewing the great houses of Westeros 
with uh, brand, brand, uh, sorry, Bran, I love this scene because it's yet again, I think the showrunners trying to reinforce the, the world building. Yeah. They're trying to insert in scenes. All right, let me let me just casually tell the viewer, you know, all this stuff they need to know to understand this world. So Maester Lewin is, is, is you know, giving counsel to Bran. He's, he's tapping on a map different areas of Westeros asking, you know, what are the great houses? What is their sigil? What is their words? Um, and he starts with the Iron Islands. Now, Spencer, I'm going to give you the same little tutorial that uh, Maester Lewin oh, gives uh, Bran. You ready? <laughs> I, but let me just say I loved how organic this scene was, but I'm going to hate having to do it myself. Go on. Oh, you'll be able to do it. Okay. All right. So, Spencer, we're sitting next to each other. I tap the Iron Islands. Yep. Uh, symbol, sigil, sigil, the Kraken, uh, words, ancestral seat, uh, pike, words, we do not sow. Ruling house, uh, Greyjoy, famous for their skills at archery, navigation, and lovemaking, and, and failed rebellions. Oh, good work, Spencer. <laughs> I, 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 I love how sarcastic Meister Lewin is too when he's doing this. That's also potential best line of the episode. Yeah. Failed rebellions. Oh, hey, buddy. Hold on one second. The damn dog. Poppy, come on. Come on back here, you whimpering bastard. All right, so he's he's fighting with his uh, his dog. I'm going to talk about um, some of the other pods we have with uh, the Mangum Talks podcast. If you're still with us, uh, check out Mangum Talks Hoops with me and Levi. We also have Mangum Reads, which they pump out a lot of material. It's pretty impressive. We try. And then Whiskey on the Weekends, which is a very, very, very fun podcast that we do. Please check out Whiskey on the Weekends. Also, uh, check out Blue Apron, sponsor of the pod. Okay, going back to Spencer's test. Wait, 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 We have sponsors now? Yeah, Blue Apron. Yeah, absolutely. When did this happen? Uh, Dude, we're, I mean, we're, <laughs> we're popular, Spencer. I mean, come on. So, yeah, check out Blue Apron. Very important. All right, we cut back to Spencer's test. Uh, Spencer, I tap on the Stormlands. Okay. Uh, sigil. Sigil, the stag. A crown stag, now that Robert Baratheon is king. Words? Uh, we are the Fury. Ruling house? That would be House Baratheon. Ah, good work. I tap on the Western Lands. Sigil? That would be the Lion. Words? Huh. Bran gets this wrong. He says a Lannister always pays their debts. Their actual words, which I don't, they don't say in the episode, are hear my roar. All right. Now, what are the other uh, words that he offers as he's kind of throwing a fit here with Maester Lewin? Uh, he does everybody's words. Uh, but he ends yeah. uh, He ends with uh, the ancestral words of House Tully, which are the real point that he's Well, getting. hold on. Let's go back. He does He does an un- unbowed, unbent, unbroken. Uh, that is the words of the... Which is... Uh, the yep, House Martell. House... And then he does Righteous and Wrath. Do you remember who that is? Uh, is that Hornblood? There you go. And then he gets to Family Duty Honor. And yeah, uh, sir, I must ask, House Martell, uh, where, 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 what is their sigil? Is that the snake, right? I think it's actually the spear, isn't it? Is the... Well, it's a snake going up a spear. That's right. We're both right. There we go. Um, okay, but yeah, he... This is a real testament to how clever Bran is. Meister Lewin recognizes about halfway through before he's been leading Meister Lewin to his point and does it very well that these are the words, these are the words of my mother's house. You just said they're the words of my mother's house. So family is the most important. Where's my mom, Meister Lewin? Why isn't she here? Mm-hmm. That's beautifully mm-hmm. done on Bran's part. It really is. It was. And then, you know, 
he basically is like, uh, you know, why'd she leave? And, and Mr. Lewin says, I can't tell you, but she'll be home soon. And he said, Dude, do you know where she is? No. Then how do you know she'll be home soon? Not a great point. And Mr. Lewin kind of, kind of sets back and says, sometimes I worry you're too smart for your own good. Now, that may or may not be true in season one, but I can tell you with certainty it is true in season seven. <laughs> the werewood net that is Bran uh, is too smart for his own good in season seven. Very much so. So a little bit of foreshadowing there. Uh, Bran starts to fret that he won't ever be able to shoot an arrow again. And Maester Lewin says, well, if Tyrion's style works, he can shoot, you can shoot from horseback. Just like the Dothraki boys do as young as four. Now, Spencer, my question for you is, can't you shoot an arrow from a chair? Uh, you could. I think a horseback provides you a better seat to do it from. You have a better command of the area. Uh, but yeah, no real reason why you couldn't. Just a horse seems yeah. like a much, a much more useful and mobile platform for it. Now, I love how the dialogue in the scene continues to drive home the world building, as I referenced earlier. Mm -hmm. They reference the houses, the sigils, their words, and even the Dothraki. So, shout out to the uh, the showrunners. I think this is a great scene. And, and, and again, it's done so effortlessly and organically. It makes perfect sense that they'd be doing this lesson right now. And so, at the same time he's teaching Bran, he's teaching us. It's just a perfect way to do world building in a way that doesn't come across as forced, stilted, or narrated. Perfectly done. And then we cut to a completely unnecessary scene where Theon is having sex with Roz, uh, and he's pretty rough with her. Uh, and he asks what it's like, uh, and, and you know, Spencer, I don't work blue. You do, quote, working with an imp. Uh, she says, well, you might be surprised. And then Theon grabs her face and says he doesn't want to pay for it. And she says, get yourself a wife. Very weird scene. It, Spencer, is there anything here other than just so, just to show nudity? It's I can't even call it sex position because they're not really offering us anything new. It's the pretty much exact same conversation that he had with Tyrion an episode ago talking about going to Roz. There's nothing new offered here. It just seems for the purpose of repeating what you've already done and showing us tits. Which, again, bravo, Roz is hot. But you're not really adding much here other than... Roz is clever, knowledgeable, and is not willing to take uh, Theon's crap. But we already know that nobody's really, really willing to take Theon's crap. So, yeah, it's not much is really offered or added here. Yeah, bad scene. I, 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 I'm not a fan of that scene. So we cut to King's Landing, and Ned is in the Tower of the Hand, um, and Varys walks in, and Varys asks if Bran has lost the use of his legs, and Ned says yes, and Varys. Wants to confirm that he doesn't have any brain damage, basically. Like, he has his senses about him, and Ned says, so they say. Uh, great quote here by Varys. A blessing, then. I suffered an early mutilation myself. Some doors close forever. Others open in the most unexpected ways. Yeah, and it, Love that one. It's a great line. I like it. For, it, it, is a, it is a very powerful line. And it's it's true. Yeah. It, you know, it plays out that way for Bran. Uh, Varys sits, and he explains, um, the king is a fool. Your friend, I know, but a fool. Get Bobby B's name out of your mouth, Varys. How dare him call Bobby B a fool? I, I, I don't appreciate it, Spencer. I understand. I But I love, as he's presenting this, how the tone of his voice changes. He's losing all the little floweriness that he otherwise hides himself. He's going coldly analytical and just giving Ned the facts. And it's in a way that when he starts going into this, all you can do is listen. And Ned immediately leans into the seriousness of it as he's taking it in. Varys, you put some respect on King Bobby B's name. I don't appreciate it. <laughs> You're not that. leaving that but alone. Anyway, Varys says, says the king is doomed without Ned's help. Uh, Ned asks why. He didn't tell him sooner. Why didn't he tell him sooner? And Varys says he didn't trust him. He's been watching him, apparently. Uh, and he now thinks that Ned is a man of honor. 
Uh, he's not slinking around and, and, and doing all the nonsense that someone like Picel or Littlefinger is. He's an honorable man. Mm-hmm. And Varys even posits, maybe I'm an honorable man too. At least I try to be. At this point in season one, Spencer, I did not think that Varys was telling the truth about his character. And but after watching later seasons, I do. And despite all the mystery around Varys' character, if you look at it, and tell me if I'm wrong here, his actions are remarkably consistent. I disagree. I do, and I do. I, I agree that the show has ended How up. How dare you? I, I agree. <laughs> the mere thought that I would disagree with the Almighty Lord of the podcast. But bear with me, sir. Do not execute me now. My my point here, though, is, is that. He's doing the exact same thing to Ned that Littlefinger is. And either he doesn't have as good as information as Littlefinger, which I don't believe that for a second, or just like Littlefinger, he's purposely leading Ned down the rabbit hole. Because he does the exact same things in pointing Ned towards Sir Hugh and the Lannisters. When he presumably knows that those are dead ends. It's possible he doesn't. But I work under the assumption that, that... that Varys knows everything. Does he know that the Sir Sir Hugh, like, uh, sort of <clears throat> leeway ends up in nothing? I don't know that we do. I don't know that either. It's possible that Littlefinger's... We don't know. He doesn't know that's a dead end. He, he may well not. He. It's one of those things of where there's two explanations to this. Either A, and there's some support for this based on what we see prior, later in the episode... He has as much interest in causing this this Lannister Stark conflict as Littlefinger does, or B, he actually is not knowledgeable about this point and is just trying to direct Ned as best he can. It's one of those two. The show clearly ends up in one direction. I think the books end up in the other. Yeah, I, I don't know, Spencer. I, I I give Varys a little bit more credit because um, of a completely um, you know. It, it, obviously varies spilling his truth when he's talking to Illyrio later and he does say hey man we don't need to kill ned like he this hand is not like the other he likes ned i, I do believe that um and i i don't have no idea if he is leading ned to sir Hugh with a veil because he really thinks there's something there or not um but anyway i i, I tend to give varies the uh the benefit well, of the doubt you don't it's fair enough it's one of the joys of season one and the books in this regard is that littlefinger and varus are and that they're it's never clear where they stand it's never clear what their motivations are they are enigmas and it's fun to debate from what you see of their actions what they actually want to bring about because it isn't clear they are it makes them much more interesting compelling characters in that they are so knowledgeable and they are so omnipresent in terms of what they can bring to bear with their information that they're really intimidating and surprisingly opaque so I like it that we're not, that we can have a debate right now about what Varys intends. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, th- I think that's what the season wants you to do. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're, we're having the dialogue that I think the showrunners want you to have. So Varys then indicates that Robert will meet the same end as John Aaron. And he tells uh, Ned that, that John Aaron was poisoned by the tears of Lys. Ned asks who did it. And Varys basically goes, well, I don't know. And he, then he suggests Sir Hugh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Ned asks why someone would want to kill John Aaron. I'm like, and this is this is Ned's like sort of northern ignorance. He's like, well, he's a good guy. Why would somebody want to kill him? And great line by Varys here. I nominate it for best line of the episode. He started asking questions, mm-hmm. which is again pointing Ned along to uh, John Aaron's investigation, which 
it continues to send Ned down the rabbit hole. Why he's doing this is what we what we will continue to debate, I'm sure. So cut to Arya chasing a cat. And I love young Arya. Even chasing this damn cat cracks me up. Like, it just... <laughs> the fact that she's running around the Red Keep trying to catch a cat, it's just funny to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Doesn't catch it, she, she goes... To, she goes down to the crypts and she sees the dragon skulls in the dungeon. Viserys, you are wrong. King Bobby B did not destroy the dragon skulls. The man, uh, the, they are down in the crypt. The man has an appreciation of art. As much as he despises the Targaryens, these things are priceless. Even Bobby B would never throw away something of that value. It is, but that's interesting though, because he does loathe the Targaryens, mm-hmm. but he he didn't destroy them, and so. I don't know. Like, I mean, just what we know of King Bobby B, both in the show and in the books, it wouldn't surprise me if he had destroyed the the dragon skulls, but he didn't. He might see them as trophies. Um, it could be, could be, or he could just, like you say, he could just be, he could just say, like, well, these things clearly were powerful. They were magic. They were very important in our history. Mm-hmm. We need to keep them around, just just as a sort of like museum type thing. Yeah, I mean. It has to be one of these things because he does indeed keep them. He doesn't want them to be immediately within his sight or his throne room. They're an emblem of a now overthrown house. But destroyed, that's not what he wants to bring about. So uh, Arya hears people talking. uh, And so she hides in the dragon's mouth, which is pretty funny. And it's Illyrio and uh, and Varys. And they're talking. Now, I'm going to do a little game here, Spencer. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to talk about specifically what they say here. Okay. Because the game I'm going to play later is a game I like to call Telephone with Aria. <laughs> where <laughs> what we're going to do, <laughs> what we're going to do when we get there is we're going to read exactly what uh, Illyrio and Very says. And fun. then we're going to read the game of Telephone from Aria in her recounting time. Uh, you genius uh, bastard. That's, that's great. That's great. <laughs> but. But suffice it to say, uh, they are talking, uh, Varys and Illyrio, about the current situation with Ned, the Lannisters, uh, and also uh, Danny and Caldrogo. Mm-hmm. Now, when Varys and Illyrio leave, they lock the door behind them. Now, this fucks Arya because she can't get out. Yeah. Uh, so she kind of goes up to the lock. She tries, She shakes it. She doesn't know how to get out. Now, at this point in the show, I think we don't quite, like, at least me, I thought, oh, man, she's she may die down there. But if... <laughs> <laughs> on a rewatch, you go, <clears throat> there is no way that Arya is going to be trapped somewhere. She's going to find some little, like, you know, yeah. hole somewhere to get out, right? If a, uh, if a cat can fit in the, can fit around in King's Landing, clearly Arya is going to get out of this trap. That's just how it works. She yes. is that nimble exactly. wily. <laughs> yeah, she'll figure it out. So we stay in King's Landing into the throne room, and Varys walks in and meets Littlefinger. Littlefinger is staring longingly at the uh, <laughs> the Iron Throne. Uh, great scene here, Spencer. This is a all time scene of this show. Two heavyweights going at it, face to face, pound for pound. Littlefinger immediately goes in on Varys. He goes for a body shot, a head shot. He says, "Hey, um, you can visit my brothel. Have a little boy this evening." <laughs> very various kind of parries the blow a little bit by taking through all the awful shit that happens in Littlefinger's brothel like Lord Redwin who likes his boys quite young or Sir Marlin of Tumblestone who prefers prefers amputees or a certain lord with a fresh taste for cadavers must be tough logistically you know to find cadavers fresh cadavers who are good looking uh, Varys definitely lands a blow here um, and 
so much so that Littlefinger, I think, is he's kind of rocked. He's back on his heels. He goes low. And he just kind of blurts out, does someone somewhere keep your balls in a box? Very, very weak. I don't like this. Yeah. Uh, right now, I'm st- I'm scoring varies higher in this round than Littlefinger. And this weak-ass punch gets so quickly countered by Varys that I love his response of, you know, I have no idea where they are. And we've been so close. Just utterly <laughs> brushing aside that little jab from, from Littlefinger. Right. But Littlefinger gets off the mat and he lets Varys know um, that Varys went to speak with Ned. And... He saw that Varys was escorting a certain foreign dignitary around King's Landing. Now, this obviously has Varys unsettled. Rinley barges in. What are you two conspiring about? And he says, the king will be attending a small council meeting. Littlefinger seems surprised. He says, what? And Varys turns around, looks at him and says, disturbing news from far away. Haven't you heard? Spencer! Who, who won this round? Oh, Varys. Varys. I mean, even when, he, even when he was appearing flustered, it was all part of the act for this particular moment. Just to end it with, and here's my explanation. Now, let us go and bask in the information I have acquired and not you. It, yeah, I, I wouldn't even call it on points. That's almost like a TKO there at that last moment. Yeah, I score it 10 to 8 for Varys, uh, definitely. Uh, that, we cut to, we're still in King's Landing, we cut to Arya. She makes her way out of the sewer. Not surprising. And um, she's now completely out of the Red Keep. Uh, and she walks up to the front door. The guards don't recognize her and think she's just a beggar. Now, Spencer, this is, and I did not know this until this last rewatch. What an incredible parallel to season seven. When Arya walks up to the front door of Winterfell. Mm-hmm. It, and they think, they're like, oh, you don't belong here. Same thing, right? Oh, yeah. It's plain that before they started producing season seven, they set all the writers down and said, we're going to watch season one. And you're going to draw parallels because there's so many wonderful moments they did in season seven that are directly mirroring scenes in season one. Completely agree. So they call her a boy and say her father is just some town drunk and Arya comes in hot. My father's hand of the king. I'm not a boy. I'm Arya Stark of Winterfell. If you lay a hand on me, my father will have both your heads on spikes. Now, are you going to tell me? Sorry. Now, are you going to let me by or do I need to smack you in the ear to help you with your hearing? So she really lights them up and they believe her, which is different than the the scene in season seven where uh, even after her little like sort of diatribe, they don't believe her. She has to kind of sneak off. Yeah, I I love the little look the two gold cloaks share of like, oh, shit, we're actually going to be in trouble right now, aren't we? Okay, okay, let the little spunky girl by. Maybe we'll escort her there. So cut to the uh, the Tower of the Hand, and uh, Arya's meeting with Ned, and Ned says he has half his guard out looking for her. I'd like to point out yet again, Spencer, like how frivolous Ned is with his guard. Yeah, Ned, you got, like he just sends them out. He got 50 guys, like, what man. What the hell, dude? Yeah, you need to keep some of them close. Like, how about you let the uh, the, the gold cloaks search for Arya? Yeah. But anyway, I mean, um, you're, go ahead. you're in mid-management. You should really start lecturing Ned about resource management and correctly allocating his resources because he's using his strongest resources just really almost whimsically in terms of sending all of them out to solve whatever the immediate problem is. <laughs> okay, now we are uh, at our newest segment on the GO2 Got Questions podcast, Telephone with Arya. So... We're going to do a reading of what Varys and Illyrio actually said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we're going to do a reading of what uh, Arya, in her recounting to Ned, says about that conversation. So looking forward to this. Please go. <laughs> okay. This is Varys. 
He's found one bastard already. He has the book. The rest will come. And when he knows the truth, what will he do? Gods know alone. Gods, gods alone know. The fools tried to kill a son. What's worse, they botched it. The wolf and the lion will be at each other's throats. We will be at war soon, my friend. What good is war now? We're not ready. If one hand can die, why not a second? This hand is not like the other. We need time. Caldrogo will not make his move until his son is born. You know how these savages are. Delay, you say. Move fast, I reply. There's no longer a game for... And then they go out of, uh, out of the scene. Mm-hmm. And this is Arya recounting it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They said they're going to kill you. Who did? I didn't see them, but I think one was fat. Oh, Arya. I'm not lying. They said you found the bastard. And the wolves are fighting lions. And savage. Something about the savage. <laughs> Ned, Ned asked where she heard it. She said the dungeons. Ned asked why she's there. And Arya says, I'm chasing a cat. There you go. Telephone with Arya. And this is, again, why attorneys hate how much everybody assigns credit to witness testimony. Because this is pretty much a witness describing an event on the stand in terms of the completeness of what actually occurred. You get flavors of it. How much she f- think about how much she fucks up the, the reference to the Dothraki. Something savage. And something about the savage. <laughs> what? There's a, there's, there is a taste of what occurred. There is, an, there is an element of accurately describing the events. But it's barely even a veneer. But it, it is just enough that it actually does set Ned on edge. The moment she starts referencing the bastard, Ned stands up and is like, okay, she actually did overhear something. Let's pay attention to this. <laughs> yeah, but then it all falls apart oh, yeah. because he's like, where'd you hear this? And she goes, the dungeons. He's like, why are we there? I was chasing a cat. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that was Telephone with Arya. Uh, then we cut to uh, Jory. Jory comes in and he um, he says there's a night watchman there to see him. It's a guy named Yorin. We've seen him before. He traveled with Tyrion uh, and broke with him, I believe, at the uh, inn at the crossroads, right? He did. When Tyrion was taken. Yeah. And he comes in and he uh, he says, um, you know, he's there to uh, find recruits. Uh, but that's not the reason he's bothering Ned at this point. Um, and Yorin says, basically, like, dude, I about broke my horse to get here. Uh, in part because your brother is Benjen Stark. Benjen Stark's br- uh, blood run- runs black, uh, just like mine. It makes him as much a brother of mine as yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has to speak to him in private. Uh, they go to move into private, and uh, Jory takes Arya aside, and uh, Arya is starting to piece things together. Lovely young Arya. I love her yeah. so much. She says, how many guards does my father have? Which is 50. And he says, you know, let somebody kill him, Arya. <laughs> so she clearly takes this fat man and this uh, guy in shadows conversation pretty seriously. Oh, yeah. uh, Jory says, oh, no, absolutely not. Which, uh, you know, obviously does not bear out in this episode. <laughs> he can't make that promise. He does what he uh, can. We cut to, we cut to Yorin, uh, and he informs Ned that his wife has taken the up. <sighs> yep. Yeah, and you could just see how utterly flat-footed Ned is caught by this. This is not factory into the plans that he was needing to work out right now. No, not at all. Uh, But shout out to Yorin that he came and warned Ned of this. Although Ned Ned doesn't do much with the warning, (laughs) which we'll get to later. Ned's planning Uh, on it at this point. He's planning on it, but things get out of his control real damn fast. So we cut to the veil. Uh, and the Knights of the Vale ride out of the Bloody Gate to meet Catelyn, Sir Roderick, and Tyrion. 
and he, this is something that's interesting to me. The Knights of the Vale are pretty aggressive with Cat. Although, question for you, Spencer, how does the knight know Cat's face? He just walks up to her and knows who she is and also knows who Tyrion is. Yeah, and... How? Uh, well, this is an example of how of a, how differently a scene plays out book versus show. Because as you say, there's no reason that Sir Egan would know them. He's never met them before. This is a world before, you know, printed pictures of the printing press. There's no way that he'd know who they are unless he'd got the message sent up, which he may. And they also, and they make a point. Exactly. They make a point of saying that Kat did not give any advance word that she was coming. Right. So it further complicates, like, why would this guy, how does he know what she looks like? Which is why in the book, A, they would never have gotten this close to the Eerie before they were, they were confronted. They're, they're not riding out of the bloody gate. The Eerie is there. They can see it in the distance. The bloody gate's like 300 miles south uh, southwest of where they are. Um, in the book, at least, she actually meets her uncle, Bryden the Blackfish, who is in service to the Aarons at that time. And he recognizes her, and he identifies her, and he escorts them the rest of the way to the Eerie. Which makes sense, because that way... So he, much more believable. It, yeah, exactly. Which makes sense, because he has to lead them through, like, five castles to even get to the point that they are suddenly seeing the Eerie on the show. But I'm going to offer the Eerie and Veil geography as an example for book nerd bitching, because it's really kind of interesting. Uh, but it, but this, just go with it. For some reason, he knows them. Maybe he's seen a picture drawn before. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <clears throat> and the knights, basically, Cat says, well, he's my prisoner. Talking about Tyrion, and the knight says he doesn't look like a prisoner. And Kat says, well, my sister will decide that. And he said, yeah, she will. Follow me. He's, uh, as they're going, uh, Tyrion turns to... Do you have something? But just to say, like you said, they're being really hostile. They are really aggressively confronting him. He kind of vaguely, politely greets her at first, but then just goes straight to challenging her about why she's there and what she's doing and why there's a Lannister with her. It's a really aggressive Which posture. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it, it, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of it sense. It reflects his lady's state of mind and the instructions he's probably received. Yeah. Well, as they're, they're following the Knights of the Vale going into the Bloody Gate, Tyrion kind of looks up. He's, he's riding next to, to uh, uh, Bronn and he says, uh, the Eyrie, they say it's impregnable. <laughs> Bronn says, Give me ten good men and some climbing spikes, and I'll impregnate the bitch. Which Tyrion, I like you. <laughs> great, great line, great line, and I love again that they're directly quoting this line in season seven. Very good, and it is also the first reference to good men uh, in the show, which uh, good men get a lot of shout out in the later seasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the reference to good men went downhill as time went on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anything more about this? Uh, nothing other than that. That is probably the, the picture they make of the Uri is probably one of the most hauntingly beautiful and, un, and unrealistic castles I've ever seen. But it makes for a hell of a pretty visage. It certainly does. And we see that again in season five. All right, cut to King's Landing. Ned is walking and is told that he is needed at a small council meeting. I think it's the same guy who uh, <laughs> greeted Ned when he walked in mm -hmm. uh, after his trip from Winterfell. So Ned does not like this guy. Uh, and Ned says, look, I'm not going there. I need to see the king first. And he's informed the king is actually at the small council meeting. And Ned then panics and he says, uh, is this about my life? Uh, and the guy kind of looks at him like, uh, what? No, no. I, I think it's about I think it's about Daenerys Targaryen. <laughs> Priority, sir. <laughs> All right, so cut to Ned walking into the small council meeting. And the small council meeting, we've got King Bobby B. He's sitting uh, 
like kind of counter to where Ned walks in. We've got Rinley. We've got Grandmaster Pycelle. We've got Littlefinger. And we have Varys. First line of dialogue. The whore is pregnant. <laughs> That's <laughs> so such a King Bobby B. Not happy. Yeah, I would love like King Robert to preside over Congress just because we'd get wonderful lines like that to open the debate. Rather than, okay, calling Bill 1.3 or 1 to a floor vote, all in favor of a floor vote, we instead get Robert opening up with, the whore is pregnant. It just, <laughs> U.S. politics would be so much more fun if that was how C-SPAN opened. Ned fires back, you're speaking of murdering a child. The king reminds Ned that he actually warned him about this, and we talked about this in our coverage of that episode, I think it was episode two, uh, maybe one, uh, where the king said, like, hey, this is going to be a problem. If oh, Daenerys yeah. Targaryen actually has a son of the, the head of a Dothraki army, this could be a problem for us. And then he says he wants both Danny and the child dead. And that fool Viserys, which I love that <laughs> reference. So he, it's gotten to him from Essos how stupid Viserys is. Now, notice, Spencer, shout out to this. He didn't say shit about Khal Drogo. He kept shouting Khal Drogo's name out of his mouth. He ain't picking that fight. <laughs> And it it feeds wonderfully into the prior scene of where the show is presenting, okay, it's presenting another, again, another facet, another possible interpretation of Varys of, okay, maybe he is just playing the people overseas for the purpose of mining information that he can go back and tell Robert. Um, it, again, I love how many different options they're offering to interpret Littlefinger and Varys at this stage about what they really want to do. Yeah. Uh, again, the king is not picking a fight with uh, Caldron. No, he just wants to kill Danny and the child. Uh, and Ned not having it for reasons that if you have watched all the way through season seven, you understand because um, John is actually a Targaryen. Uh, he says, you'll dishonor yourself forever if you do this. He, king Bobby B. Honor! I've got seven kingdoms to rule. One king, seven kingdoms. You think honor keeps him in line? You think it's honor that keeps the peace? It's fair, fair and blood. And to which Ned responds. You know about it. <laughs> to, which then, yeah, go ahead. to which Ned then responds with the most Neddy of lines. Then we are no better than the Mad King. Careful, Ned. Careful now. <laughs> God, this is like, <laughs> your Robert, your Robert has gotten perfect, man. This is lovely. <laughs> but, but, Ned calls the fact that uh, Danny is pregnant a rumor. So this is another angle that Ned's going for, right? He's like, ah, well, I can't get with the sort of moral argument. Maybe I can go, well, your information is imperfect, right? This is conjecture. Yeah. I mean, um, Ned's clearly Ned's clearly caught flat-footed by this. I mean, from what we know about Ned, even beyond simply he has a Targaryen that he's protecting, he really cares about protecting children. So much of Ned's decision-making is built around the idea of protecting children from harm both in the past in terms of how horrified he was at what uh, um, Tywin did to the to the Targaryen children in terms of protecting Jon, and now in terms of he clearly views Danny as a child. He repeats that several times, and that he wants to try to protect her, an innocent in his view, from harm. Um, but he's grasping at straws. He's off his back foot, and he's just keen, he's jumping between arguments to try to make it, to try to rebut what Robert's saying, of where, as you said, he starts with, uh, it's unreliable information. To which Varys immediately goes, no, I heard it direct from per somebody that's part, part of her retinue. But right. Ned then says, yeah. uh, well, right. it's, maybe it's reliable information, but it's from, it's from an unreliable source. <laughs> which uh, immediately he gets told, yeah, I don't know. This is actually Sorjor Mormont who has supplied the information to Varys. Ned stays the course. He says, well, you, anyway, that guy's an asshole. Uh, but <laughs> I'm only going to fear the Dothraki when they reach, uh, they teach their horses to run on water. Mm -hmm. 
the king sums up Ned's position as do nothing and really doesn't like this strategy. You're my counsel, counsel! Speak sense to this honorable foe! And the various Pycelle, Rinley, and Littlefinger all try to convince Ned to no avail. Mm-hmm. They all have interesting ways of doing it, where they each have, they each have a very fitting in their style, or fitting in also what they're trying to what they're trying to bring about from this. Where Varys just says, you know, this is a terrible thing. We have to do terrible things from the realm. And the realm will bleed unless we prevent it. Pycelle, yeah, she's innocent, but think about it: all the innocents will die if they invade. Why is there to stop this now? Rinley, just kind of flippantly, eh, we should have done it years ago. Exactly. I like your Rinley cracked me up because he didn't give a cogent argument. No. He was just like, yeah, yeah, just do the shit. Just very flippantly, <laughs> I, why am I even here? And then Littlefinger, which I almost think is purposefully trying to set Ned off by ending with a, an argument that just comes across as vulgar and not really the same kind of sensible benefit of the realm arguments that Pycelle and Varys were doing, just literally says, hey, when you're in a bed with, a, with an ugly woman, it's better to just uh, kill it and do it quickly. It's like, uh, I got the quote for Please. you. <clears throat> when you find yourself in bed with an ugly woman, you best close your eyes and get over, get it over with. Cut her throat and be done with it. Yeah. And w- it, what was hilarious to me is as he's saying this line, like, Varys, like, shudders. He's like, oh. Yeah, everybody else face palms because they know this is not the working argument, not the argument you present to Ned. And Littlefinger knows this, too. He's trying to cause conflict right now. Yeah, chaos is a ladder. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ned again, he's not being swayed, uh, he, <laughs> which again, as we know from later seasons, why he doesn't, uh, but he says he shouldn't do it. He says the Robert I grew up with didn't tremble at the shadow of an unborn child. That's a great line. That is a great line. Yeah. yeah I, I nominate that for best line of the episode. Um, <laughs> Robert says she dies. Ned says, I will have no part in it. Um, Robert says you're the King's hand, Lord Stark. You will do as I command or you will find me or I will find me a hand who will. And Ned, in the ball, probably the ballsiest uh, line of dialogue from this scene, says, I thought you were a better man. Which sets Robert off oh, yeah. and he screams, Run! Go back to Winterfell! So mad at him. Uh, Ned walks out and you can hear Robert just ranting and raving as he goes. And, and uh, one thing I'll point out, Spencer, before you jump in, he actually takes the uh, pin, the Hand of the King pin, and tosses it on the table. Yeah. Yeah. Which leads the uh, the viewer to think that maybe he stepped down his hand at the game. It does. And notably, as a result of him being kind of cold-cocked by all this Danny news coming out and Robert being at the council meeting, he doesn't get to say a word about Catelyn and Tyrion, which is the main thing he wanted to go talk to Robert about. But he just doesn't have an opportunity to do it because he's not going to say it in front of the small council right there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's, yeah. Uh, all right. So we cut to the Eerie. Uh, what, uh, just one thing to wrap up. I mean... Again, this is just very much the constant war between Ned, Ned's honor and Robert having really descended into cold pragmatism. And we can, we can debate endlessly which one is the more right in this moment. I think in the end, um, but I think we can say Ned's choice is the more, most honorable. It also works out to be the right choice. But I don't think, I think it, it, most of the people's stances in this room are perfectly reasonable. It's just fascinating to see that they all, re, regardless of how reasonable their advice comes about, they have their own very much unique motivations for why they're giving it. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. All right. So I, I said we cut to the area, but we actually don't because we, we stay in King's Landing and Ned immediately is like going to the, the Tower of the Hand and he's packing. Yeah, Ned, he's trying to leave. Ned's, Ned's packing the way I pack whenever I'm going to see you guys. Oh, shit. I didn't pack last night. My flight leaves in two hours. Just shove everything in boxes. Yeah. No socks, but <laughs> everything else. I've got too many socks left at your house. I don't need to bring any. Uh, it's true. So he's 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 kind of panicking. He's packing. Littlefinger shows up, 
And he says, hey, look, when are you planning to leave? And, and Ned really doesn't want to engage him. Uh, but Littlefinger says he can take Ned to the last person John Aaron spoke to before he got sick. This obviously piques the interest of Ned and Ned goes with him. Uh, and, and this is interesting. This is uh, yet another Ned you don't know what to do with your own men. He says <laughs> the men should stay and guard the girls. He only takes himself, Jory, and two other men. Yeah. So you got four people after he has, <laughs> well, he's got two things going on, right? One, his wife has taken Tyrion Lannister. And two, he just basically called the king an asshole and quit <laughs> his job. Open court. His hand to the king. And he goes out to a brothel across town with only four people. Not a smart move, Ned. No, I mean, it again shows what Ned's priorities are. Ned will always be willing to risk his own life and limb to ensure that his family is protected. He knows this is dumb. He knows he shouldn't be going and doing this. Littlefinger is purposefully using what he knows to keep Ned around a little bit longer so that this becomes a conflict. And Ned kind of doesn't know that Littlefinger's playing him, but he knows this is an unnecessary risk. But he feels compelled, because of his love of John, of John Aaron, because of his love of Robert, to keep investigating this. But he's not going to go do the dumb thing in a way that risks his, risks his daughters. So, as usual... He puts himself at the risky place because of what his priorities are. It makes sense, but he still knowingly is going and doing a thing that he knows is dumb just because of his own honor compelling him to do so. But he clearly knows it's dumb. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You're more of a net apologist than me. I right? have this, my this reasons. In, yeah, I know you do. But this this move in particular is really stupid. He should have just left. Uh, he should, but he didn't. And it, uh, you can see him. By, you can see him warring with himself as he take as he goes and follows Littlefinger. He's wanting to leave. He knows that's the right call. Right. All right. Now we do cut to the Erie, uh, and Cat and Tyrion are before Lysa Aaron, and she is all kinds of crazy. <laughs> what a character Whoa. introduction. I mean. <laughs> to see this, you know, middle-aged woman up on a massive weirwood throne in this austere white stone room, breastfeeding a nine-year-old. Hello. Okay. Yeah. Well, do we do we know she's nine? Do we? I I don't. I actually don't know how old Robin is in the show. I think he's like seven or eight in the books. He looks like he's probably nine or ten. I think, but I don't know. Well, yeah, she is. Uh, she is looking really, really crazy, uh, and she is not happy uh, with with Cat, which which not what we expect, right? Because we, as the viewer, all we know is, okay, well, this is Lysa Aaron's uh, widow, and this is Cat's uh, sister. Mm -hmm. I think maybe Cat's going to a safe place. Not so much, because Lysa is really pissed that that Cat brought uh, Tyrion to them. And, and her point seems to be like, I don't want anything to do with the Lannisters. I just don't want them to be here. She says to Robin, you're honest in a bad thing, Robin. A very bad thing. And then she brags on Robin. And she seems to think that John Aaron saying the seed is strong was about Robin. Which, by the way, one of the worst translations. Well, I mean, I mean, she's really, <laughs> she really fucked that up. Presumably she also <laughs> knows it's bullshit. She killed him. She's the one who did it. She knows she did it. Yeah, yeah, which <laughs> is funny because, and I'll get to it, but she later like accuses Tyrion of it. But um, she then brags on Rob. Uh, then, then uh, yeah, so this is to that point. Uh, Lysa then accuses Tyrion of killing John Aaron, which Tyrion is just like, oh, I did that too. Like at this point, Tyrion is just like, Jesus Christ, people. Like you, <laughs> okay, what else did I do? Like <laughs> he 
people think I've just killed everybody. Are, My God. It, um, and, and I kind of think that like Lysa accusing Tyrion of killing John Aaron, it's a sort of like touch your nose, not it situation. Yeah. Like, she's just trying to throw it on somebody else. Yeah. This guy's already accused of crimes. Clearly he committed all crimes in the city of New York during this time period. Oh, did I do that? I've been a very busy man. I love that line. I love the dripping sarcasm. It's good, yeah. Peter Dinklage, I mean, in the early seasons, is peak Peter Dinklage. I mean, he's very good. But Tyrion then suggests, hey, uh, my brother Jamie is going to be coming if you do anything to me. Yeah. Which we find out later in this episode is very true. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie in his current Jamie in his current form is not going to take uh, a slight on Tyrion very well. Uh, well, but then, uh, the little <laughs> Robin Aaron, sweet Robin, who, who is, says, I want to make the bad man fly. He's six at this point <laughs> in the book. The kid looks older here though. Yeah, he does. He, I, I actually wrote down. I thought he was eight. Okay. Um, but cat forbids it. Uh, and here's my question for you, Spencer. Did she, does she forbid it out of honor? Like she says, like this man is my prisoner and this is the way this is supposed to go. Or is she starting to develop a little bit of a trust or respect for Tyrion? Because if you notice, not only did Tyrion save her life, but as Lysa's being super fucking crazy, uh, Tyrion and Kat share a look. Oh, yeah. I love the reactions that both Tyrion and Lysa, and Tyrion and Kat have as they're looking at Lysa, where Kat is rattled. She has not seen her sister like this before. She had no idea her sister was in this state. Tyrion's almost looking pitying because he knows this. He's seen this and he almost feels sorry for it. But as you said, the two of them share a look of where, oh, we're kind of in this together now, aren't we? Yeah, no, I, I, I took the look to be Tyrion looking at her, looking at Kat and saying, I'm sorry, but I told you. Yeah. And like, there, there is nothing in all of the, the, the other episodes to dispute the fact that I think that Tyrion has real affection for Kat. Yeah, I think he does. I think he really likes her and respects her. And I think he really feels bad for her in this moment, despite the fact that Kat took him prisoner for some shit he did not do, doesn't listen to him, and potentially is going to kill him. Tyrion still has a respect and affection for Kat. So shout out Tyrion. And I'll offer as an additional Kat motivation that I fully agree with the two interpretations I think that you offered. I think they're both true. The third one I'll throw out is Kat's also pretty pragmatic. If Tyrion's killed now, it cuts off the source information about what the plot was, about what was being covered up. She kind of needs Tyrion alive because if he does know anything, this is keeping him alive is the only way I'm ever going to get it. Ah, oh, Spencer, you're getting so good at radio. So that transitions into the end of the scene, which is where Kat forbids um, the errands from making the bad man fly. Mm -hmm. And Lysa puts Tyrion in the sky cell of the Vale with Maud. Now, this fucking... Can you talk a little bit about this cell, Spencer? Because I am a man, and I have gone on record on multiple uh, podcast feeds on the Mega Talks podcast channel. I am terrified of heights, and this shit, it, I couldn't even watch. Yeah, if, if of all the places you could be a prisoner in the Seven Kingdoms, it seems the Vale of Aaron would be your own personal hell. Because the sky cells of the Eerie are just as they're depicted. They, the Aarons brag about the fact that they are the only High Lord family that offers prisoners the opportunity to leave their cells at any time. And that is a cold, cold way of viewing that, of viewing that answer. Uh, view, uh, they, these are cells that are literally just hammered into the stone of the, of the uh, I think it's called the Giant's Lance. It's this epically tall mountain of the Vale, probably the tallest mountain in all of Westeros, uh, which are purposefully slanted slightly down 
going towards the edge, oh. at least 600 oh, no. feet up in the air, seemingly much higher on like the show. Um, I don't like it. So that any given moment, you're constantly feeling the angle going over the edge. If you ever lay down, oh. you're going to roll slowly towards the edge. Even your equilibrium oh, no. is slowly just pulling you off the side into the plummet down into the Vale of Aaron. And this is very oh. much intentional. It is designed as a degree of psychological torment. A, to solve the prisoner problem with no prisoner, no more, or to convince the prisoner to, to give up whatever information you want them to give up just to get the hell out of this kind of cell. Oh, man. I'm super uncomfortable. And we'll talk... So, uh, shout out... Uh, or, or, sorry, a little bit of spoiler. Like, uh, Tyrion stays in, stays in this through this episode. So, we'll talk about this uh, cell and Tyrion being in it. Uh, next episode, which I probably will be just as uncomfortable with. Anything more you want to talk about with the veil before we move to the next scene? I, mean, I, I would be very uncomfortable with the sky cell, but I cannot deny that so long as I didn't have the constant pull towards the ground that the sky cell was built to give you, it is one hell of a pretty vista. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> You're finding the good in all That's things. All right, the King's Landing. And Loris Tyrell is shaving Rinley. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, this, I have a lot of problems with this. Scene. This is the second of three scenes in this episode that are purposely behind the curtain scenes of where it's seeing intimate moments that we otherwise never get to see in the books from non point of view characters. I think you will probably agree that of the three that we get, this is the worst of the three. Uh, it's just so like, I don't know. We'll get to it. Anyway. <clears throat> Loris is shaving Renly, and Renly's complaining that Robert and Stannis don't take him seriously, and I can't imagine why not. As he's being he says shaved. Robert, he says Robert and Stannis thinks that he squirms at the sight of blood, and then a bit later, Loris pricks him, and Renly does just that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Renly does get off a good line here. You have to give it to the Lannisters. They may be the most pompous, ponderous cunts the gods ever suffered on the world, but they do have an outrageous amount of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty good line. Yeah, uh, yeah and then, uh, which Loris reminds him, well, I got some money too, which the Tyrells. Uh, and I think this is meant to uh, inform the, the listener, uh, the viewer, that uh, the Lannisters have the most money in the Seven Kingdoms, but the Tyrells have the second most money, right? Yeah, that they are a powerhouse in their own right, and you need to remember who the Tyrells are going in the later seasons. And it's important that they introduce them early, because it, it's putting them in the head that, of what, what the power politics of Westeros are. I'm just disappointed that they're essentially just casting Loras in the same scheming mentality as other members of his family, that he's really not. Yeah, and then Renly starts talking about uh, how he doesn't want to go hunting with Robert. He sounds like a, kind of a, like a immature guy at this point like i want to go hunting uh and then loris just starts talking about how rinley would be a good king Mm -hmm. i think we're meant to believe that this is the first time this idea has been uh, broached sort of brought up to rinley yeah uh because rinley kind of like pushes it aside he's like i shouldn't do that like i'm fourth in line i think he says um uh, Loris isn't having that. Uh, at one point, <laughs> Loris says, Stannis has the personality of a lobster. You watch your tongue! Yeah, I, I, I love the full, the fullness of that line of where you know, Renly says, I'm fourth in line. To which Loris brings up the good point. And where's Robert in the line of royal succession? Good point, Rod of Conquest. Vidian continues, Joffrey's a monster. Tommen is eight. Stannis? Stannis has the personality of a lobster. <laughs> it's just a wonderful I'll good run of going to his point of, of the people that could occur... You are far and away the best. 
Uh, yeah. So fuck Loris, obviously. <laughs> I'm done with Loris at this point. How dare you besmirch the honor of uh, uh, Stannis Baratheon? I, I did not like that at all. But I, I hated the scene. Uh, I, this scene and the scene with uh, Theon and Roz are my two least favorite scenes of the episode. Uh, I just feel like they're just making them effeminate for no other reason than the fact they're gay. Like, there's no reason to make them so effeminate. And, and I, uh, and I, it's just boring logic, right? It's boring logic. Gay equals effeminate. And I know they felt the need to bring out the fact that they were gay early on to make it more abundantly clear than it was in the books, and to bring a, I'd argue even necessary bit of diversity to the cast and the characters they're depicting. But they. By offering this as the main first thing that we know about those two characters, this is one of the real first moments we get to know the two of them. It becomes the main thing they portray from here. And it gets really disappointing that two otherwise very interesting characters, the only notes they start to hit, particularly for Loris later on, is, oh, that's the gay guy. And that's just really losing a, a nice complexity to his character. Um, that I, I think is one of the unfortunate losses of the show. Well, it just frustrates me that like the show can't depict a gay character as strong, yeah, a strong, capable. They all have to be like weak and scrawny and wanting to be shaved. Like it's just, it's lame. And, I don't like and it. it. It's interesting how this is the start of a different depiction of Renly, which I, in some ways, appreciate the Renly they depict on the show as being an actually legitimate contender for the throne, as somebody who really could bring a degree of skill and nuance and new perspective, but. And because they're going that route, because they're focusing on that very different Renly than they picked in the books, they decide to distinguish him as much as possible from Robert. And I just don't feel that that's necessary. You can still do a mix of good features as you do a mix of Robert's martial ability of being a character who is respected in this world for those kind of abilities, while at the same time bringing in a nuance and a uh, a uh, perspective on the world and the people in it that the, the rest of these kind of claimants to the throne lack. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, what's interesting to me is that in the books, it's very clear that Robert, Stannis, and Rinley share a lot of features. Yeah, very um, much so. I think Donald Donald Noyle, right, he talks about them um, being kind of cut from the same cloth. Yeah. Uh, but in the show, they look completely fucking different. Like, I, I, these three actors, like, I don't know who did the casting. They don't look like they're remotely related. They don't look like cousins. Which undermines some of the main points the show makes about how every member of the Baratheon family has coal black hair and blue eyes. These are the traits of the Baratheon line. It's a key part of John Aaron's investigation. But they look nothing at all like each other, which is fine. Again, ability over appearance. They're all wonderful actors that do well with the roles. But it's, it, it is laughable to a certain degree, given the emphasis the show makes on these are what Baratheon children look like. Yeah, I agree. All right, cut to King Bobby B. Day drinking alone. He's my king. Shout out. Uh, and Cersei walks in. This is a show-only scene here, Spencer, right? This is a show-only scene, and it is. I would nominate this scene as the best scene of the entire friggin' series. It's not good. It's not great. It's very fucking great. And I'm going to struggle not just recounting every <laughs> single line to the audience. This 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 episode, <laughs> sorry, this scene is the... I, it's incredible. And I think that like this is where the A Song of Ice and Fire fandom were watching the show and they created a scene that's not in the books. And it's so good. I think this is when they got the buy-in of all of the fandom, right? And, and this is a moment they got the buy-in of the family. And not only because it's new, but it's different 
it is a different depiction of the characters. It is them going their own path in terms of interpreting how these characters interact. And even the background of their relationship. It's legitimately different than the books. But it is so well written and it is so confident in how it's portraying it that you can't help but be invested in what they are now going to do with the show. The fact that they have the guts to not only make a brand new scene in the middle of the, mi- the mid-season episode entirely. I mean, several of these other scenes have been new and added. The scene between Littlefinger and Varys. The scene between Loras and, and um, Renly. But this one really matters in a way that those were just kind of playful banter. And for it to be made up out of whole cloth and its own fresh interpretation for where they're going with the show, the fandom was invested from here. It's like, okay, not only is this going to be a good, a, a, a pleasant adaptation of the show, but it's going to do its own thing and it's going to do it well. Yeah, this is incredible. All right, so go into the scene. Um, <laughs> Cersei walks in, uh, Lena Headley kind of strolling. Uh, I nominate this for best line of the episode. Uh, sorry, your marriage to Ned Stark didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, we're going to struggle. As you said, we're going to struggle with this because I'm looking down at my notes and I got like six quotes for just this scene. All right. Uh, well, I'll, I'll go. Stop me if you have a quote. Uh, but Cersei basically says, look, you know, I don't like Ned Stark, but I'll give you this. He's a serious man. Mm-hmm. And Robert says that if the Dothraki do cross the narrow sea, the armies of Westeros can't stop them. Cersei begins to list all the reasons uh, that won't happen. And King Bobby B cuts her off and says, it's a neat little trick you do. You move your lips and your father's words come out. Great, <laughs> great quote. <laughs> Cersei says, is my father wrong? And the king then explains what would happen if the Dothraki came. Mm-hmm. Uh, the king, the armies of Westeros would have to hole up in their castles. So the Dothraki would rage and pill- raid and pillage. How long before the people of Westeros would stand behind their absentee king? Their coward king hiding behind high walls. When do the people decide that Viserys Targaryen is the rightful monarch after all? And I, I love how this scene's directly rebutting the advice that Jorah gave Danny like three episodes again. That, oh yeah, Robert's a moron. He'd fight the, the Dothraki in the, up in, in the open field. It's like, no! This guy cut... Oh, I'm sorry, man. Yeah, it's a great damn point by King Bobby B. I mean, he he's he's explaining exactly what happens. Poppy, shut the fuck up! Which is, you can't Poppy. fight him in the open field, so you have to hole up in your castle, and Get so you, you lose the battlefield. You just, you just hole up, right? Like... Uh, king bobby b doesn't get enough credit for being a good king because he he for all his faults accurately calls out the threat of the dolphin yeah and he this is again what you have to credit this man with as much as he is a blunder as a king it's not for lack of ability it's for lack of caring this guy is incredibly skilled and incredibly knowledgeable and legitimately intelligent when he cares about topics he cares about it's just we're only getting to see it briefly in this moment. We see a bit of the old Robert brought to the fore as he's talking about his forte once again. So uh, <laughs> Cersei says, uh, well, we still outnumber them, right? Like she, she goes back to that. All right, we got more people. And uh, Robert says, what's just the bigger number? Five or one? Five. She says, she's five. He holds up five fingers versus a fist. And the king seems to understand that the desperate armies of Westbros would, would struggle to fight together. Mm-hmm. Uh, the king says, Ty, everybody wants something different. Tywin wants to own the world. Ned wants to bury his head in the snow. And Cersei asks what the king wants. He raises his wine glass and drinks from it. Which I think is a great uh, illustration of the fact that the king doesn't know what he wants. Yeah. 
He doesn't know right now. I mean, he he wants to fight. I want to hit somebody, right? Like he doesn't, in his current role, he doesn't have a goal or anything. So he's just kind of floundering. Yeah, he's enjoying the small pleasures of the moment rather than having anything that actually has a long-term value or purpose. He is treading water. Yeah, and the king says he doesn't know what's holding it all together. Cersei says, our marriage. I I (laughs) love that little log. I, I love the honest moment of laughter the two of them share. This is probably the last laugh, the first laugh they've had together in years, and probably the last laugh they'll ever share. But it, first and last, yeah. It, it really is honest. I mean, when Robert looks at her after this, it's almost with an, I wouldn't say loving, but it's honestly friendly as he looks at her after this, is when he says, And so here we sit 17 years later holding it all together. And then his face falls. Don't you get tired? Then his face falls and says, don't you get tired? Every day. How long can hate hold a thing together? Yeah. And out of the blue, Cersei asks about Lyanna, which uh, we we learn she's never done before. Poppy, uh, you come Cersei here right now. She's never asked before because she hoped Robert would forget Lyanna. But when she figured out that he would not do that, she refused to ask out of spite. She didn't want Robert to know the to know that she cared or have the enjoyment um of knowing she that's cared. a proud person right there of where yeah she, go ahead yeah, I was saying that that's a it's just such a showing of how proud cersei is that even she doesn't even want to show that moment of weakness that she wants to inquire into this and then uh nominee for line of the episode robert looks up you want to know the horrible truth can't even remember what she looked like. I only know she was the only thing I ever wanted. Someone took her away from me. Seven kingdoms couldn't fill the hole she left behind. God, I love oh. this scene. That, oh. I mean, they invented this. This is a line they wrote, but it is the most perfect summary of Robert as a character and his motivations I, I could ever imagine them writing. It's just so powerful and perfect and so Robert. And Cersei's still in the moment. So, she, you know, I felt something for you once. I know. King Bobby B looks up and says, I, know. I love the shame on his face when he says that and looks down, too. That he recognizes that there was maybe even the slightest hope of a potential, at least on her side, but not, not, but not never on his. And Cersei says she felt it even after they lost their firstborn, which is show only as well. So very clearly show only scene. And she looks up at Robert and says, was it ever possible for us? Was there ever a time, ever a moment? He looks up. No. Does that that make you feel better or worse? And Cersei snaps back to being Cersei. Doesn't make me feel like anything. She gets up and leaves. So I feel like Cersei, we were getting a little bit behind the cloth, right? Yeah. She was she was opening up. Um, she was being a little bit vulnerable. But as soon as he says no, she snaps back. Right. And, and, and it, she's she's not willing to to admit that he made her feel anything. He hurt her or she cares. Yeah. And this is, again, showing that they're taking a very different interpretation of Cersei here on the show than they're doing in the books. Whereas you said... No way Cersei had a child of Robert in the books. She didn't. She even aborted one upon the, even the thought that it could be Robert's. And she never, not after their first night together, ever felt anything for Robert. That just wasn't there. That wasn't Cersei. She was too proud to let that be. And also... The, as soon as he as soon as soon he whispered Lyanna to her. Yeah. It's, done. And also, Robert is a, I would say, 
less likable character in some ways in the books, and just in the sense that he is physically abusive to Cersei in a way we don't really ever see in the show. Um, well, that's a little bit problematic. Yeah, you can't show yeah, that. Yeah, but it, it's uh, clearly they're doing a more nuanced elements of both characters, particularly with Cersei. And God, does it make for powerful moments. And it adds to the tragedy. They're going for a more tragic take on these are two likable people. These are two capable people. These are two people that could have ruled the world together and ruled it well. But they have their own problems that they brought into this that they could just never reconcile. And it's a tragedy that it never could work out. Just because, in large part, because Robert could never stop loving a ghost. Yeah, but shout out to the show. I mean, this is incredible. Again, it's so fucking good. It is so strong. It's such a powerful, different interpretation of the characters. I could book nerd bitch about it being different, but I never could with this scene just because of how well done it is. It is the show in this moment coming into its own right, I feel. I'm going to tell you this. We have a new Congress, but you ever submit this bill for book nerd bitching, it is failing. (laughs) Oh, man. Wouldn't dare. I know my audience too well for that. That scene was so good. So we cut to Ned. He's visiting the brothel to see Robert's bastard. This is where Littlefinger took him. And this poor mother. Oh, my God. I felt so bad for her. She's clearly still in love with the king or something. She's such a sweet Um, girl. She says John Aaron. Go ahead. She's such a sweet girl who has no goddamn clue. Uh, she says John Aaron only came to visit her because he wanted to see if the child was healthy. Uh, then Ned asked Littlefinger, "What do you know of King Robert's bastards?" Shout out to Littlefinger, all-time comeback. Well, he has more than you for a start. <laughs> good line, very good line. Oh man, and Jorah gives him some serious side eye here. Jory does not like this, uh, and, but Ned doesn't take the bait. Uh, and Jory gets caught looking at the merchandise before they leave. <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoy throughout all this scene. Really heady discussion and back and forth between Ned and Littlefinger. But from about halfway in on, Jory's just looking at the tits. That's <laughs> just what he's doing. Yeah, well, but, poo, looking. Well, working blues. Uh, no, hey, I like. I, you didn't even realize you did it, but you were straight going blue through the uh, Robert uh, Cersei scene. Just how passionate you were about it. Oh yeah, well if I'm doing if I'm doing Robert, that's a good thing. Um, so outside, uh, Ned and Jory are met by Jamie and a good bit of Lannister soldiers. Uh, so Ned, maybe good idea to bring more than four people with yeah, you when yeah, you are yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> going out into King's Landing. Uh, Jamie remarks, "Such a small pack of wolves." Uh, and Littlefinger comes out. What is the meaning of this Lannister? And he tells him, "Go back inside," which he does. Yeah. He says, "I'll bring the gold cloaks." Like, yeah, about really not my scene. <laughs> Uh, and Jamie says he's there because his brother was taken. You remember my brother, don't you? Lord Stark, blonde hair, sharp tongue, short mouth. Or short, sorry, <laughs> uh, short man. Yeah. Uh, Tyrion <laughs> doesn't have blonde hair, by the way. Past like episode eight, so that line does not hold up. Despite my it, fucking, it works like, for he now. Does not have blonde. It hair. works for now. They, <laughs> they dyed his hair for a period. They lost it like they did almost all the hair dyes. The show went on. So Jamie then threatens to kill Ned, and Ned says, if you do, Tyrion's a dead man. And Jamie says, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. And so he tells his men to take Ned alive. And to kill his men. So a fight ensues, and Jory and Ned start kicking the shit out of Lannister men. They cut uh, through them. They- <laughs> I think I counted six <laughs> Lannisters that are dead on the ground in like 10 seconds. So I don't think that Jamie like was really planning on fighting here, but like... He had to. So he jumps in uh, and he goes against Jory first. And this is a callback to the first part of uh, the episode when I talked about uh, how the, the, the screenshot 
for HBO Go for this episode was a little bit of a spoiler because Jamie pulls out a dagger and he stabs it through Jory's eye. Uh, and, tough moment. It's not only a tough moment. I remember when I first watched this scene, this was one of the first moments in the show I was really freaking shocked. Because this is a pretty important secondary character that we've gotten a bit of character development with. And he's just very casually killed off. Uh, yeah, and you were a sweet summer child because... <laughs> Oh, look out. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't he, I had no idea at this point. I, I hadn't read the books when I first watched season one. And so I had no idea what was going on or what was happening. And I was along for the ride. So Jamie and Ned square off. And it reminds me of an uh, earlier episode for this season when Jamie like was like, hey, why don't you participate in the tourney with Ned? And Ned says something along the lines of, when I fight a man for real, I don't want him to know what I'm capable of. Which is good because Ned apparently is capable of a lot because he holds his own as, as, uh, as with Jamie. As Barristan told us, Barristan was not being polite when he, when he said that Ned had cut down numerous uh, uh, famous knights. This is a guy that can He's, kill absolutely holding his own until a Lannister soldier jams a spear through his knee. Now, I've got a couple questions for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First, who would have won this fight if that up-jump Lannister soldier didn't do that? Uh, Well, books, A, this fight never happens, and B, Ned is being pretty honest when he says that, eh, I'm okay. Show? Ned's... There's a moment in this show of when they're, they're crossing guards and pushing against each other of where Jamie is suddenly realizing... Oh shit, I underestimated this guy. And they split off, and Jamie's kind of pissed. He's growling at Ned. And Ned is, for the first moment we've ever seen him, looking smug. And at that moment is when the Lannister comes up and spears him in the back of the knee. I think Jamie I think Ned could have taken him. I think on the show. Yeah, you are you're yeah, you're a Ned, a Stark, a Sansa apologist. I agree with you. I mean, what what I saw on the screen, it looks like Ned was winning. Yeah. And that, and so when the, the, the spear goes into Ned's knee, I think that makes Jamie even more angry because he knows he was losing on the cards when Ned got the TKO. Yeah. Now, a lot of the fandom tries to say, ah, Ned, uh, Jamie was just playing with him. He would have gone serious here in a second. It would have been over real quick. I don't read that on Jamie's face here. I read Jamie having fun no, at first either. playing with him and then quickly starting to get serious and it's not working. Yeah, I agree. All right, so second question for you after the scene. Now, in this time period, right, uh, what we're being portrayed, like in this world, if a spear is jammed through your knee, you never recover. No, no. I mean, there's not, like, think about it. Like, think about how complicated your knee is if a spear goes through. Like, Ned was never going to be able to walk normal again after this. I mean, is it through his knee or is it through his either his thigh or his calf? I can't tell the exact angle where it is. If it's literally through his... I watched it a... Mm-hmm. I watched it a couple times. It really looks like the knee. If it's literally his uh, knee. Now, if it's through it, if it's through, yeah, if it's through his thigh, now I agree with you. Like, uh, he could probably make a recovery. But if it went, like, think about the underside of your knee, right? That little, like, uh, the angle. Mm-hmm. If, a, if a spear goes through there, you need, like, reconstructive surgery. Oh, yeah. Like, you're not, it just, it just doesn't heal on its own. And so, if you're assuming that that's what happened, like, Ned was never going to be able to walk or normal or fight again which is in keeping this is a moment in the books of where ned shatters his leg his horse collapse on it as he's cutting he's trying to cut his way through the lannister guards and from here on out book and show ned is limping and acting as if this is a permanent or at least very serious kind of injury i agree with you that if this is actually a spear to the back of his knee, even in modern day he's permanently hobbled it's never going to be as good again in the in that world okay will he ever walk again is an open question 
Okay, so you casually mentioned the difference between this scene and the book. Can you explain just, yeah, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds, what happens in the book? Uh, scene kind of plays out pretty similarly in terms of being confronted at the brothel. The difference is, is that Ned and his men are on horseback, whereas the Lannisters aren't. There's armed spearmen that have come to the scene, and Jamie doesn't participate. Jamie kind of just sets his men on them and just flees the scene, which I kind of prefer in some ways how it plays out in the show and just giving Jamie a bit more time to be depicted rather than just as a casual, distant villain as he's betrayed early on. But Ned and his men Agreed. essentially try to cut their way out. Two of them get swamped fairly quickly. Jory charges back like a knight in charming armor and starts lancing through them to try to get to his two other men and starts to get taken down himself. While Ned is cutting them through like a boss that he is, but his horse, I think, gets speared or trips and it collapses on Ned's leg and breaks him and he passes out right then. So definitely plays it differently. There's no duel between, with Jamie involved, but overall it's basically hitting the same notes. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Good work. All right. So Jamie uh, clearly is not happy that one of his men did this. Uh, and he just hits the guy who stabbed Ned and he says, yeah, my brother, Lord Stark, I want him back into the episode. And God, that's a dramatic way to end this episode of where you can just see perfectly why the episode was named what it was, because the war has started. If the war didn't already start with Catelyn grabbing Tyrion, it has become a straight up shoot and fight now. The lion and the wolf and the, the savage and the savage. <laughs> she tried. She All right. Tried. You want to do best line of the episode? Let's do best line. We got so many options. Oh. This one is going to be maybe an all-timer for best oh, line. You may go the longest uh, you've ever I just, been. I, I, um, I just controlled, I can just control F quote in my notes. I have 21 options. <laughs> God, buddy. Jesus. Sorry. I don't have quite that many, but I got a lot. Okay. Um, okay. I'll start. Ned Stark. If the king got what he wanted all the time, he'd still be fighting a dime rebellion. Great. Great line. I love the little chuckle they share right there. I'm going to offer a line from earlier in the scene. I'm glad we never met on the field, Sir Barristan, as is my wife. I don't think the widow's life would have suited her. You heard the hand. The king is too fat for his armor. Go find the breastplate, Spretcher. <laughs> I love this entire scene between Robert and Ned and Lancel. They're just utterly abusing the poor boy. I'm going to offer at least one or two more from the scene of where even the opening line is just pure D, Robert. Your mother was a dumb whore with a fat ass. Did you know that? <laughs> I thought being king meant I could do whatever I want. Yeah. And I'm off for the ending line. Ah, an inspiring sight for the people. Come, come, bow before your king. Bow your shits. <laughs> Very good one. Very good one. Um, I will go with... Um, and tell me, Lord Ridley, when will you be having your friend? <laughs> great line. Great great response from Littlefinger. That was one of ones from line two. Uh, what do I got next? Uh, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit uh, to uh, the fight with the Hill Tribes at the end of it. You're first. Tyrion nods. You need a woman. Nothing like a woman after a fight. Tyrion looks at Kat. I'm willing if she is. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go back to Clegane Bowl version one. Stop this madness in the name of your king! <laughs> Uh, Robert is going to be about 90% of the quotes of this episode easy. Oh, yeah. It's a peak King Bobby B episode. All right. Uh, I'm going to go with and Littlefinger's ineffectual jab and Varys's response. Does someone keep in your balls in a box? I've often wondered. You know, I have no idea where they are, and we've been so close. 
Ooh, I'm going to cut back to Winterfell, where Maester Lewin is uh, teaching Bran. Um, the Iron Islands. Kraken. Words, we do not sow. Greyjoy. Famous for their skills in archery, navigation, and lovemaking. And failed rebellions. Great line. I love Maester Lewin's snark. Uh, I'm going to go with just the uh, sheer impish fury of Arya. My father is Hand of the King. I'm not a boy. I'm Arya Stark of Winterfell. And if you lay a hand on me, my father will have both your heads on spikes. Now, are you going to let me by, or am I going to need to smack your ear to help you he- help you with your hearing? Very good. Very good. Um, I'm going to go to... Disturbing news from far away. Haven't you heard? I only I only only use that one because I think that's when Varys levels Littlefinger. Oh yeah, just rent. knocks him. That's flat. when he wins. Yeah, I, I, that's when I he think wins. little I think Littlefinger survives the count for that the end, at the end of that round. But God, it knocked him off his feet. Yep. All right, uh, I'm gonna go with. I think this is a good line from Yorin. Your brother Benjen is Bron Lund's back. Makes him just as much my brother as yours. It's for his sake I rode so hard I damn near killed my horse. That's good. I'm going to cut to telephone with Arya. <laughs> you don't even... They said they were going to kill you. Who did? I didn't see them, but I think one was fat. Oh, Arya. I'm not lying. They said you found the bastard. And the wolves. Biden, the lion. The savage. Tell me about the savage. <laughs> yeah. 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 Perfect. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then just one of the most memorable quotes of the series. The Eerie. They say it's impregnable. Uh, give me ten good men and climbing spikes. I'll impregnate the bitch. I like so, you. So good. So good. Oh my god. All right, back to me. Um, the whore is pregnant. God, I'm just quote <laughs> quote everything Robert says in this scene. Uh, I'm gonna next pick the one where he does the honor. Could you just read that? Because your Bobby B voice is perfect. <laughs> honor. I've got seven kingdoms to rule. One king. Seven kingdoms. You think it's honor that keeps him in line? You think it's honor that keeps the peace? It's fair. Fair and blood. Uh, I nominate that one. After you, sir. Then we're no better than the Mad yeah. King. Careful, Ned. Careful now. But it, I, I do. I love that Ned is pushing back. At him. Oh, yeah. This is just a, such a N- Ned is not a wallflower. Ned is always going to stand for what he believes in. Ned is, again, the ideal person to be on this council, to offer unique advice and stand by it. May not agree with him, but he has his reasons, and he's going to argue it to you. Um, let's see here. I'm going to offer... You're my counsel! Counsel! Speak sense to this honorable fool! I'm going to offer Ned's response here at the end, because he has a wonderful line that really does hit Robert deep, of where the Robert I grew up with didn't tremble at the shadow of an unborn child. She dies! (laughs) We're just quoting this scene at this point. It's like we're reading the stage directions. It's so good! It's so good! All right, I'm going to jump. I'm going to jump just to get to a different scene. Uh, Lysa, the, um, in, in the Eyrie, accusing Tyrion of crimes. Oh, did I kill him too? I've been a very busy man. So good. Um, okay, I'll cut back to King's Landing. You have to give it to the Lannisters. I mean, they may be the most ponderous, pompous cunts the gods ever suffered in the world, but they do have an outrageous amount of money. Perfect line, perfect line. Uh, I'm going to offer this one just because of how surprisingly scary it is mommy i want to see the bad man fly Ooh, yeah that's good 
Um, how about this? Cersei to King Bobby B. Sorry your marriage to Ned Stark didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That, that, that scene is cheating. We're going to do every single line of that scene. I mean, before we even get there. Yeah, look out. Before we get there, just because of how much it pisses you off. Stannis. Stannis is the personality of a lobster. Boo. <laughs> how dare you? How dare you? It's true. Yes. It's totally true. No, it's not. All right, come on. Let's quote every let's quote every line in that scene between Robert and Cersei now. <laughs> okay, let's. Do All it. right, uh, I uh, uh, I'm gonna res- respond to your line with it's a neat little trick you do. You move your lips and your father's voice comes out. How long before the people of Westeros would stand beside their absentee king? Their coward king, hiding behind high walls. When do the people decide that Viserys Targaryen is the rightful monarch after all? Uh, well, here, you do Robert for the scene, I'll do Cersei. The, what is the, which is the bigger number? Which is the bigger number, five or one? Uh, drink in hand, five. Oh, I don't have the rest of five. it. Five. One. Five. One, one army. Yeah. Yeah. One, one army, <laughs> a real army, united by one leader with one purpose. Our purpose died with the Mad King. Now we have as many armies as we have men with gold in their purse. And everybody wants something different. Your father wants to rule the world. Ned Stark wants to run away and bury his head in the snow. What do you want? And then he, I just, it's a line in its own right of him just lifting his glass and smiling at the camera. Oh, here we go. Uh, so here we sit. 17 years later, holding it all together. Don't you get tired? Every day. Ooh. Oh, so good. All right, here's another one. You want to know the horrible truth? Can't even remember what she looks like. Hold on one second. Let me just make the dog shut up. Ooh, man, this is a tough one, uh, folks who are listening. Poppy, shut up. Poppy, come here. It's not in the book. Poppy, come here. But for Robert to not... Look, everything about him is driven by... His love for Lyanna. That's why he went and killed Rhaegar Targaryen. That, that was the point of the rebellion. And for now, all these years later, he can't even remember what she looks like. It's tragic. Uh, it's beautiful. It's a hell of a line. Come on, man. That's got that's, that's got to win, right? That's got to be the line, right? But I got one. Hey, look, hey, hold on. Like, I haven't decided. I know yet. you haven't decided yet, but what else could beat that? But let's, let's see. Do I have any more? Uh, yeah, I got, I got one more. I thought this, there's a couple good lines by Littlefinger. I know you're going to do one. Oh, well, let's go. Let's go back. Let's go okay. back. Um, oh, uh, there is another line from that scene. I'll, I'll finish it off. Yeah. Uh, you know, I felt something for you once. There you go. I know. Even after we lost our first boy, was it ever possible for us? Was there ever a moment, ever a time, ever a moment? No. Does that make you feel better or worse? Doesn't make me feel anything. Yeah. So good. And Cersei goes back to Cersei so quick. Uh, I love the sort of heel turn she does. Do you think and this is the moment where she decided she was going to kill him? Because he's going on the hunt immediately after this. I, I think she decided well before yeah, that. Yeah, but I think this may have been the moment where she was even trying to just confirm it in her own mind. And then just this just sealed her to it. Um. Uh, I think I think we got two lines then for Littlefinger talking with Ned in the brothel. Uh, you had the good one of fewer bastards than you, Lord Stark. Um, but what, what what is the precise line? I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> what do you know of King Robert's bastards? Well, he has more than you for a start. <laughs> uh, and I'll offer one of where 
Uh, brothels make for much better investment than ships, I've found. Whores rarely sink. It's a funny line. <laughs> uh, here's one. Such a small pack of wolves. Mm. I, I'm out of line, sir. You got anything else to wrap us up with, or is that is, is, are, have we finished? You remember my brother, don't you, Lord Stuck? Blonde hair, sharp tongue. Short man. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. All right. Best line of the episode. Um, I think we're going to do... Two. Oh, two. Wow, we've gone off our usual form. Hell, I think we need a drum roll for this yeah, with how I, much dramatic I, tension we built up. I I think we're going to do two. Uh, we're going to do the one that I like saying the most, mm-hmm. which is, Stop this madness in the name of your king! You do that one so perfectly. You really do. Uh, that one's fun to do. And then I think we're going to do the real one. Um, okay, <laughs> best line of the episode. It is. Come on. Ready for it. Season 1, Episode 5, The Lion and the Wolf. You want to know the horrible truth? I can't even remember what she looks like. I only know she was the only thing I ever wanted. Someone took her away from me, and Seven Kingdoms couldn't fill the hole she left behind. Is this not the best line of the series? I mean, it's just so... So good! And, again, it it really goes to how much I miss some of the actors they brought on for Season 1. Because Mark Addy is a wonderful actor. He's been in a lot of great things. But God, does he kill it as Robert in this scene. Or period. He's a wonderful Robert. Destroys it. But in this scene, yeah. it is just Yeah, God-like. so good. Uh, but yeah, that, absolutely. I mean, I, I picked this one because I think it it's so important through the context of what happens before the show even starts, right? Oh, yeah. Like, this was the whole motivation for Robert's Rebellion. This is why the entire, uh, why all of Westeros was completely uprooted. Just because he had this love for this woman, which, by the way, we have a bunch of uh, <laughs> evidence, a little bit in the show, a lot in the books, that he really didn't even love her. He just, 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 just something that he, it was a thing he thought he the loved. The idea of her. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've heard described before of loving a shadow. I think that's really kind of true of where he put in her everything that he wanted to love, rather than necessarily knowing what she was as a person. And that even makes it more tragic, really. Um but it's just an incredibly powerful line, an incredibly powerful scene. And I think it's how powerful this scene is would be diluted if they ever made the foolish enough mistake to do a Robert's Rebellion prequel. I hate prequels anyway, but I think a Robert's Rebellion prequel in particular would just never reach the kind of power we get of them talking about it uh, in the talking about it as events in the past. Well, it's such a great parallel because, you know, we're we're basically told uh, through both the show and the books is that this is someone who loved the idea of a woman. In the books, Liana even comments on like it. through flashbacks. She she even says like, I know he doesn't really love me. He just thinks he loves me. And it's so like it's so fitting that someone who thinks they love someone, you know, twenty years later, can't remember what she looks like, but still thinks they love them. Right. Yeah. Like it's 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 perfect. Mm-hmm. <sighs> oh, all right. Well, season one, episode five, recap. We are done. Okay, Spencer. Now for a little segment we call book nerd bitching. Take it away. Okay. Well, given my diligent, honestly excessive research on various potential topics, despite the near perfection that is the first season, I have five five topics for you to pick between this illustrious evening. Are you ready? 
Woo! Okay. All right. Book nerd bitch away. Okay. Option number one is, I simply call it seeing behind the curtain. That over the course of this episode, seemingly intentionally compiling them together, we have three separate scenes involving three different sets of characters, all of whom are not point of view characters, and all of whom we never once see on the page talk with each other in the book. That it is letting us see characters that otherwise are purposefully opaque, some of which, like Littlefinger and Varys, are very intentionally kept mysterious for a very long time. And even to this date, their exact motivations are clear. So the show is letting us see behind the curtain, see what some of these characters' motivations and the reasons behind their actions are. And my question for us to ponder is, does it work? And what does it portend for the future about the fact that they're willing to give us this information and see very clearly... What is compelling these characters to do as they do? Option one. Option two is focused on different portrayals of characters. Uh, we talked about how season one is very close to the books, but this episode in particular, we see a lot of characters display very much novel motivations or different focuses on them than the book necessarily portrays. Some of these are very, some of these in keeping of the book, there's emphasizing them more. Other ones are entirely different from the book characters. Many of them work very well. But what is the natural result of that kind of change so early in the going? If you inherently change how a character is motivated, what ripples does that have have going forward with the rest of the medium? Option three, a little bit simpler but still fascinating, the Eerie, the illustrious seat of House Aaron. What is it? How did it get there? And what does the uh, what does it represent about the uh, Aaron's lordship over the Vale? Option four, Robert's Bastards. If you were to watch the show, you wouldn't think that there were that many of them or that they were all killed off in one fell swoop. So would it it surprise you that there's probably about 16 of them roaming around out there, many of which we've actually met, many of which are actually main characters and are, if anything, open about the fact they are Robert's Bastards and acknowledged by the world. Which ones still remain and what relevance do they have to the ongoing story? And option five, this one's just kind of a fun one that might be interesting to discuss. I just finally noticed this one when I was rewatching the episode, but the attack on the brothel. Doesn't this seem to have a lot in common with the battle with the Tower of Joy? Don't these two have a lot of parallels in terms of the imagery and how the events play out, making it all the more appropriate that in the books in particular, that after this occurs, we get our one vision that we've had in the books of the Tower of Joy. So these are the five options I present before you. I let you pick. Okay, well, I loved this episode, uh, and I think you got some good stuff here. So I'm going to pick three. Big book nerd bitching segment here today. Um, I'm not going to do one, which is seen behind the curtain. I think that we're going to be able to do that in later episodes, probably during the recap. Uh, And we've done some of it already. Uh, Now, two I like, which is different portrayals, uh, basically, of the book and the show, and I, I bring that up because I did already talk about that a little bit. We did. Mm-hmm. Um, this episode with Loris, I think there's probably a few more you could talk about. So I'm definitely picking two. Uh, the Eerie, yes, three. Uh, and I do that just because I'm a man of the people. Spencer, you know I'm not a selfish man. I just feel like the folks out there who are show watchers only, who follow us, who are GOT Got Questions podcast fans, they may not know much about the Eerie, and they might be wondering what the hell it is. So Uh I think we can drop a little knowledge on them for how dare you bring up Robert's Bastards. (laughs) King Bobby B is my homeboy. We're not talking about him. We're not snitching on him. So no, four is out. And five, yes, I love it. I had the same thought uh, as you did, uh, the parallels between the Tower of Joy and the attack on the brothel. So I give you two, three, 
and five. Okay. Take it away. Uh, I'm just going to put aside the many, many, many pages of notes I had on each one of Robert's bastards and then stare at them longingly for some future never to actually come back to use. You can go ahead and burn them because even if we get the uh, the upper right-hand corner at magnumtalks.com, contact us button and we get the, hey, I want to hear about that. We're not hearing about it. King Bobby B's my man. No slander. No slander. He's not slander. He's acknowledged most of them. But we will move on. How about we go with the eerie first? It's, an, it's, a, it's a nice, easy way to start. The rest of the other two are going to be a little bit just more debate between us. Uh, a debate between us? I'm, I am eager to get you involved in this. Before we even start the episode, you commented that uh, the... Before I even raised this potential topic, you'd commented, Huh, doesn't the attack of the brothel remind you a bit of the Tower of Joy? And I went, Okay, I've got a partner for this topic now to discuss. Do you have a partner or do you have a lack of notes? I have both. (laughs) You're the best, Spencer. All right, the Eerie, take it away. The Eerie. Uh, The Eerie is an interesting castle for Westeros in that it's not really a castle at all. It's much more of a mountain retreat. Most of the castles of Westeros in some ways embody and represent the houses that hold dominion over them. The Eerie is no exception. For a house whose words are high as honor... What better place to put their seat than atop the tallest mountain in the south? Potentially the tallest mountain in all of Westeros, at least certainly the tallest mountain south of the wall, the uh, Giant's Lance. Is it taller than? Is it taller than Dragonstone? Ah, uh, yeah, it is gigantic. I mean, the va- uh, the Vale isn't described in many ways. It's almost resembling the Himalayas in terms of how impassable it is, and the Giant's Lance just towers over all, with the Eyrie hanging alongside it. Dragonstone. Okay, and mm-hmm. another question. Um, I know that uh, Casterly Rock is pretty high too, right? That's the, uh, the the seat of House Lannister. Yeah, I mean both both Dragonstone and the uh, Castle Rock are talked about as being you know massive rocky structures, but for both of them, it's just kind of that they are so kind of like separate and by themselves. I mean, Castle Rock is just you know normal terrain, normal terrain. Oh my God, there's the Rock of Gibraltar just sitting there on the edge of the coast, and they built a castle into it. So it's gotcha. not, it's not okay. so tall, it's just distinct. And Dragonstone is just this carved out of the side of a volcano kind of unit. It's not a massive thing, but in terms of the artwork that went into making this obsidian monolith look all kinds of dragony by the by the Targaryen family, it's just very unique. But in terms of just sheer scale, Giant's Lance is, you know, it's Mount Everest of Westeros. If there's gotcha. taller things north of the wall, they are not charted. We don't necessarily know about them. But one of the ways that makes the uh, eerie very distinct from the rest of the castle of Westeros is that it's relatively tiny. We talk about, like, say, um, Winterfell being able to accommodate thousands of troops to resist a prolonged siege. The Eyrie can, is basically just seven towers hanging on a mountainside. It can hold about 500 people. It has a few halls and everything else, but it's not really intended to be a military structure. It's meant to be a place where the Aarons can summer, looking down upon their domain and all those who are lesser than they. But that's not to lead you to believe that it is not a very defensible place. For one, it's on top of a friggin' mountain, the tallest mountain in all of Westeros. Rather hard to get to. But to even get to that point, and this is something I was a little bit disappointed that the show kind of breezed over, you have to go through a series of defenses that have remained relatively unbroken and unpierced for 10, 20,000 years, basically all recorded history. Uh, at the very beginning, kind of marking the edge. Wait a second. Mm-hmm. I disagree with that. I'm going to, I'm going to explain it. I'm going to explain it, and you're going to uh, 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 hopefully get you around my point of view. Okay. Point. I withdraw the motion. I, I accept continue, your challenge. Senator. I wish you just to table it for future for, for future reference. <laughs> Please continue, Senator. <laughs> uh, the before you even enter the Vale of Aaron, which is where the um, Aaron's hold sway. 
you have to go through what's what's first called the Bloody Gate. Now, the Bloody Gate marks the edge of their territory, or at least part, part of the inhabited area, and it is an ancient, ancient series of battlements that guards the high road. It's essentially just a fortified series of walls and towers that block the main pass going into the Aran territories. It is ancient. It is one of those things that's just been kind of lost to recorded history. It is so old. We know it was built by the first men. We know it was improved by uh, later kings. But in terms of its history, most of what we know about it is just who has died before it. The Bloody Gate is well-named. Going back to the Age of Heroes, that kind of forgotten period that followed. Well, forgotten or otherwise described in terms of myth and legend uh, period that followed the original invasion by the others, we know that at least a dozen, if not more, armies utterly shattered themselves trying to get through the Bloody Gate to invade the lands beyond. That it is named from the blood of countless soldiers that has been soaked into the earth beneath it. It is stalwart, it is vehement, it is an angry structure of history. And the show just seemingly breezes over that and Catelyn got past it at some point. In the book, it makes it very clear that when she's attacked, when she and her party are attacked by the Mountain Tribes, it's outside the Bloody Gate, which makes sense, because you wouldn't want the Hill Tribes to be just roaming frequently inside your, your protected domain area. It's actually a sally that comes from the Bloody Gate, which is commanded by her uncle, Edmure Tully, or um, the Blackfish Tully, that uh, saves her and her party. She, he, then being in service to the Aaron family, because he doesn't really have much of a a comfortable seat back home in the Riverlands, escorts her home, escorts her the rest of the way to the Erie, getting her through the next series of castles that follows. So let's say you make it through the Bloody Gate that literally no one has ever breached before. Okay, not an easy start. You then get to the Gates of the Moon, a giant castle that sits squat, stout, and stubborn at the base of the uh, giant's lance. It is relatively new when it comes to a lot of the castles of Westeros, but it is a powerful structure that is built on the same site as where the original kings of House Aaron, before they were kings of the Vale, conquered the various houses of the First Men in the Battle of the Seven Stars. And a castle was built on the site of their victory. This is very much the winter seat of House Aaron. Well, when winter descends upon the Vale, it descends hard, almost as hard as the north. And so they have to retreat out of the mountains and come down to this seat to weather out the winter. It is a heavy castle. It is very impressive in its own right. But it is anything but ostentatious. It is the kind of castle that serves a profound, simple military purpose, but is not necessarily meant for the entertaining of guests or impressing anyone as to the illustrious nature of your reign. But let's say you get through this castle. It's occasionally attacked by various mountain tribes operating alongside it. No one's actually ever conquered it, but let's say you find a way to get through this heavy, defensible location. Then you're basically going up a goat trail, which you see on the show, which is very remote, which is very tiny, which is very dangerous. There's these rickety bridges straight out of Indiana Jones. It is not necessarily the way you want to move an army up. And even as you're going up that, there are three additional castles, way castles, which are named, I wrote their names down here, which are called, uh, they're called stones. Hey, can I jump in? Yeah. Go, you you do, the, do that and then I'll jump in. 
Okay, they're called Stones, Snow, and Sky. These mark the path, essentially, of an elaborate goat trail that goes up the rest of the way to the Eyrie. Even if you make it to Sky, the final way castle, the Eyrie is essentially 600 feet straight above it, to which you can climb an incredibly narrow, winding mountain pass to go up there, or you can essentially proceed up in a basket, the way that Catelyn does off-screen in the, sh- in the books and show. Right, your question, sir. Uh, meaning uh, that if um, I was uh, a character in Westeros, um, that the <laughs> the eerie would basically be called the oh no fuck no 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 I'm not going up there. I'd rather deal with the White Walkers. I'm not going up there. Uh, it is very much a seat for people that are don't suffer from any degree of agoraphobia. <laughs> if you have any fear oh of heights God. whatsoever, just stay away from the veil. It's not for you. Even just your explanation there got me a little uncomfortable. And and I think it's in um, what is this? A feast for a feast of, for the crows, um, where they talk about Sansa being in the veil. Ah, uh, yes. When and they talk about they talk about her coming up and down it, and it's like oh, it's a it's a production to get into this castle. Yes, when she's being escorted by Maya Stone, one of the one of the, of the Baratheon bastards. Thank you for introducing that topic. Now I can talk about it. I'll stop. Oh, how dare you? <laughs> you I'm gonna go you back. broached um, it. Um, uh, I did not. I did not. <laughs> that's, that's a bit of a reach. But I'm going to point out, uh, so I've watched this episode God knows how many times, and I never have taken the read that you did that when um, Sansa, or sorry, when uh, Kat uh, greets the Knights of the Vale that she's past the bloody gate. I mean, I, I didn't, I never assumed that. I, I, when I was looking at it, I was like, I think she's on the, the road up to the bloody gate and they came they rode out and met her but i, I could be wrong but that was just always been my read it's one of those things where the bloody gate is so far removed from the eerie and so many mountain passes to go there you could not see the eerie from it i mean it's like it's right it's probably it's, think, it's think, like a hundred miles between the two right but think of show only watchers right sure because we do we do get the the bloody gate like in season, what is it, four? Kind of. With Arya. Yeah, with Arya and the Hound. And that, that certainly doesn't look like it's 100 miles from the castle. So I think, I don't know that the show is, is necessarily characterizing it that way. The, the show has been very fond of condensing geography to make it easier to get between point A and point B. And I think this is just another example of that. To get between the bloody There's gate. There's some book nerd bitching. <laughs> to get between the bloody gate and the veil is an endeavor. It takes days. It takes weeks. It takes you losing half your armor getting blown off windswept passes just fighting against the nature of the mountains you're trying to mount but let's say you get up to the Erie. let's say you've made it through all of these way castles what is the Erie and why is it there the Erie is essentially the errands a very 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 steeped in pride family looking upon their seat at the gates of the moon and saying well that's uglier than castle rock and high tower i know I'll literally climb the highest mountain in the world, as far as I know, and put a series of seven towers, seven because I'm religious as shit and want to honor the seven aspects of my faith, and put that forward as just a series of monoliths representing the glory that is my house. Oh, sure, possibly thousands of people are going to die building me this illustrious, excessive, extravagant pleasure palace. But I am House Aaron, and I am noble, and I am honorable, and this shall be what it shall be. This thing literally took generations. I mean, the original invader, um, Artis Aaron, he built the, the Gates of the Moon seemingly within his own lifetime, which is an impressive achievement. 
His grandson, Roland Aaron, deciding that the Gates of the Moon was not sufficiently impressive enough and now having to compare himself to the lords of uh, Lannister and uh, Hightower, decided that he was going to build the uh, Eyrie. It took generations. He's like importing marble from across the narrow sea to get this thing built. But when it was accomplished, it was indeed the ultimate pleasure palace. For the times during the long summers that they can enjoy it, it was a truly impressive structure to represent the majesty of their house. Now, you raised the point, and I'll let you make it right now, that perhaps these various defenses have been in some ways conquered before. Were you going to bring up that the Vale has been conquered a couple times in the past? I'm going to bring up, um, yeah, I'm going to bring up during Aegon's Conquest, the submission of the Vale. Uh, this is when... Um, you know, I think that there were uh, Targaryen forces mobilizing, uh, as were Aaron forces mobilizing oh, uh, for a battle. It would have been more of a traditional battle. Uh -huh. One, I think the Targaryen forces were not in a great position to deal with, but Visenya hey, hey, Targaryen. Let, let, she... let me get to it in order, because we're actually jumping ahead of a prior moment where the veil was conquered. <laughs> okay. Uh, go. If you want to, as you're kind of bringing it up, if you want to assault the veil from land, God help you. There's just no way you're getting through. That the by both, both using its incredibly built-up defenses as well as just the natural defenses of the ruggedness of the terrain, you're not going to get in. But the Vale has been conquered twice in our history, never going through these castles I've described. They're essentially impossible, impenetrable, unless you've got brawn and you know ten men with climbing spikes. But that's not been tested. Uh, the first time demonstrated that as impressive as the land-based defenses of the Vale are, none of them reflect the fact that the Vale is mostly surrounded by water. This isn't the Riverlands where it has a pretty much a narrow strip of land on the coast. Uh, the Vale has a very extensive coastline that faces across the narrow sea to Essos. And so when the second of our various series of invading people that crossed the narrow sea to try to conquer Westeros came across, the Andal people. When they first landed in Westeros, the first place they came was the Vale of Arryn, or at the time was just simply known as the Vale. The Arryn family did exist at that time. They were, as said, they were among the kings that were coming to the Vale to conquer it, but they hardly resembled the honorable, noble, distinguished individuals that John Aaron seems to represent. We're was talking, the Erie built at that point? The Erie was not built until um, about three generate three or four generations after they invaded. It was... Uh, uh, even, see? Even the Gates of the Moon, the, their, uh, their winter seat, was built by the original Aaron king that finally conquered all of the Vale. Now... We, when If I was asked you to describe John Aaron, I, I suppose you just use certain words like, you know, dignified, honorable, distinguished. Those words come to mind? <laughs> they would for me, but you have on this very podcast asserted that he was like the sort of invisible hand behind the uh, Robert's Rebellion. So I don't think you find him so honorable, but uh, yeah, I think he's portrayed that way. I would portray him as honorable in many ways. Uh would you depict him carving a seven-pointed star into his chest and then crossing the narrow sea, axe in hand, the blood still drips on the deck of his vessel? 
So that would be a hard no, but you maybe should give a little background as to why you made that analogy. <laughs> because this is what his ancestors were. His ancestors were Ooh. an interesting combination of Vikings and Crusaders. They were religious fanatics who, as said, similar to how we see uh, in later seasons when the faith militant comes back about, would take their blades and carve across their chest the seven-pointed star of their faith. These are the people that brought the faith of the seven to Westeros, and they didn't do so through missionaries and peaceful efforts. They did so at the tip of a sword. These were religious zealots of the worst kind who arrived in Westeros to conquer and burn. And when they arrived in the Vale, they did just that. The houses of the first men were in no way united. They were disseparate groups that were just as prone to war with each other as anybody else, and were content at first to try to use these Andal invaders to further their own ends, until we realized that these Andal invaders not only weren't leaving, but they were burning all of their weirwood groves, groves and trying to conquer anything that they could find. Eventually, they put together a bit of an alliance, the first men, that is, under, who was at the time, King Royce. Yes, House Royce is that old. And the Battle of the Seven Stars, they put everything that they had to bear to try to finally beat off the, the Andal invaders, led at that point by the King of Arryn, Artis Arryn at the time. They lost, the charge of the Arryn Knights being a famous moment in their recorded history. And so devastating were the losses that the First Men suffered at the battle that something along the lines of, I believe it's something like 14 or 15 uh, First Men houses were utterly eradicated. They were so thoroughly extinguished, we don't even remember what their names are. Those uh, firstman houses that survived were conquered. They were forced to bend the knee. Those of some degree of power, like the Royces, were able to at least quietly keep their traditions in the face of essentially religious oppression and tyranny, though, again, quietly, at least for many generations. And so most of the first men, the majority of the population of the Vale at the time, submitted. But not all. Those, there were many, not at least some, that chose to resist, that chose to fight to defend their traditions, to fight to defend their way of life, to fight to protect the faith, the religion, the belief structure, and the history that they built up, the even memories of the alliance they had with the children of the forest that the Andals were so willing to slaughter and cull and burn aside wherever they found them. These people in a different story would be celebrated. They would be trumpeted as stalwart defenders of liberty as individuals that were willing to face against inevitability and fight on for generations to protect their way of life, to defend their families against foreign invaders and oppressors. In this story, we call them the Hill Tribes. In this story, with the Arons being the ones to write the history, we view them as little more than wildlings, as individuals that the Knights of the Vale will ride off and cull in various cycles, as raiders, as thieves, as barbarians, and perhaps they are. But we are left to ask, who is ultimately perhaps responsible for their oppression, for their forced and marginalized way of life, and left to ponder what woes the vanquished must endure? So the first way, if you wish to conquer the veil, so that was wait a second, that was that was great, Spencer. That was poetic, and you may may need to look into a second career as like a sort of one of those like uh, short story readers on like NPR, okay? Because that was solid. Okay. Uh, but I'm going to challenge you a little bit here Please? because and we can check the tape. We can go back and check the tape. I thought your question was, when has the Eerie been uh, impregnated, the, as our man uh, Braun would say? No, the, um, the Eerie itself has never been conquered. The Veil has been conquered despite all of its defenses. And there is one moment 
of where I will say, arguably, the Erie has been conquered. The Erie submitted. There is a yeah, there is a difference. That's being conquered, dude. I'll accept it, and I will tell you about it. I would say that it has never been taken by military force. It has essentially been taken that, by the fact that the I king. Disagree. I disagree. Here's what I will. Here's what I will say. That if you want to take conquer the veil, there's two ways to do it. Conquer it by sea with superior naval forces, which the Andals unquestionably did. They got a foothold and they could never be removed. Or if you're the Targaryens, bypass all the land defenses entirely and land a dragon in the Eyrie to say hi. As you discussed, uh, when the Targaryens invaded, they uh, Aegon the Conqueror tasked his sister wife, Visenya, with conquering the Vale. Visenya was a famously brutal sort. She's the one that produced Magor the Cruel as her son, and he carried off a lot of her traditions afterwards. But she was also exceptionally martially gifted, and so the Andals took her threat seriously. They assembled all of their armies together, and they marched to the Bloody Gate, content that it would resist as it had against dozens of armies before, going back to the very beginning of the Age of Heroes. And if the Targaryens had tried to assault that initial fortress, or get through that to assault the Gates of the Moon, or even the various way castles ascending up to the Eyrie, they inevitably would have failed. Even if the, the uh, Andals had chosen to resist against a naval attack or anything else, it would have been a difficult slog that the Andals could well have succeeded, fighting in some ways along the, along the, way of the, uh, the same ways as the hill tribes that they often fought against, or the way the Dornish resisted against the Targaryen invasion. But the Andals were a very proud house, and the Andals had a habit of clustering in their most darkest or moments, so the moments when they wished to observe below on the world beneath them in the Eyrie itself. Visenya knew this, and so Visenya mounted her dragon, uh, which I believe was Vagar, and flew up yep. to the Eyrie, where she knew that the uh, mother, well, the essentially queen regent and her uh, infant son were residing. The queen regent awoke in the morning, went out. Names? What? Names? I have them here. One moment. It was... Uh, the Queen Regent was Shara Aaron, and the boy king was Ronald Aaron. Yes, and that's important um, because before, when before um, Visenya did this, before she she flew flew Vagar uh, to the Eyrie and landed in the courtyard, there was a peace offering by Shara Aaron, where she basically said, "Look, we will submit to you if you will make Ronald Aaron." Your heir, which and this is a long history of really bad negotiating tactics with the kings of Westeros yeah. with Aegon because they are overreaching here. I mean, oh. there may have been some some offer that they could have given Aegon and he would have accepted, but this is completely ridiculous it, to make him the heir it, to the Targaryen house. It, That's crazy. It very much reflects the pride that House Aaron has in themselves. That I'm sure that from her perspective, this was a perfectly reasonable offer. And it did nothing other than deeply offend the Targaryens as to the excessive pride of these individuals that they aimed to conquer. But the Queen Regent awoke in the morning. She went out to observe the giant's lance and the illustrious valleys that extended thousands of feet before her. And instead, she found Visenya on Vagar, holding her son, who was essentially excitedly bouncing on Visenya's need eager to take a ride in the dragon around the giant's lance. I want to fly! The desire among baby errands to watch people fly or fly themselves is apparently very high in genetic. <laughs> he, Visenya, oh so politely, agreed to fly him around 
the uh, eerie in the giant's lance as he excitedly flew on her on her lap. Meanwhile, the queen debated uh, whether Vicinia would drop her son before she made it back to the castle. She didn't, and the queen bent the knee immediately thereafter before the uh, Vicinia offered before um, yeah Vicinia offered to take him on a second trip around. So. Yep. If you wish to conquer the Vale, if you wish to assault the illustrious high seat, and you don't presumably have brawn and ten men with good climbing spikes, perhaps bring a fleet, or, lacking that, bring dragons. They tend to bypass all the natural defenses and bring the errands down from their high point of honor. So, that is your entry to the Eyrie, that is your entry to the Vale, and to House Aaron itself. Comments, criticisms, questions, sir? Uh, I feel like I got duped a little bit with the question about if, uh, when <laughs> the veil had been conquered. Obviously, I thought about that as the fury, not the veil itself. So you brought in the Andals. Uh, nonetheless, I am a man of no ego, as you know. I'm a man of the people. Uh, this was really good. This is obviously very good. This passes the defense committee. Um, it goes to the floor of the Senate. It passes, passes the House. It's going to the president's desk. Good job, Spencer. Yeah, it's a it's a fun topic. Each of the families has their own illustrious history. It's interesting to see with the Andals that they have one. Essentially, they are an invading house that from that uh, legislates from one of the newer seats in Westeros. Most of the other families are older and descended from the first men, and essentially all of the other high castles, with the exception of uh, King's Landing itself, are very very much older and descend back into the Age of Heroes and that kind of lost period of time. But go, okay. going on from there, would you prefer if we talk about different portrayals of characters, or should we discuss the brothel and the Tower of Joy? Let's do the different portrayals of characters. Okay. Something we talked about this episode, and you can pipe in about as well, is that the show in this episode really in some ways came into its own. It had incredible writing. It had incredible moments between characters. It was masterfully written. It was masterfully paced. It was setting up a very dramatic moment that is going to set the stage for the nature of the conflict going forward. And what makes that fascinating is so many of these scenes are brand new. The show previously has been very much copying the book, and we've been crediting it for that. But many of these scenes were written out of whole cloth for this episode. And that they're masterfully well done. They're very much well written. But what they're often not is not very authentic to the portrayal of the characters in the books. But they're so well written at this moment we don't care. But what does that mean in terms of plotting out the future for the story? The creators of the show had the unenviable task of not only adapting a very treasured, well-written work of literature, but they had to adapt it while plotting out where they're going to go with it in the future before it's even necessarily been fully written. Every slight change they make is not only going to affect the story that they know, but potentially could be radically divorced from the story that has yet to be finished. And some of these changes... Oh, there's the dog. Yeah, dog makes his... Uh, <laughs> his I'm going to say, you said um, you said not necessarily finished yet. Uh, you might have used one too many words there. Not finished yet. Okay, when this, not, when this not at all... Not close. When this series originally started, when the first season of the show came out, would you agree that there was a certain amount of confidence on both the writer and the show creator's part that the series would be done by the time the show got there? Mm, maybe. But, I mean, that's that's the danger, and that's why I think they probably haven't uh, started um, 
The Name of the Wind uh, and the Kingkiller Chronicles uh, by Patrick Rothfuss. They were going to do a TV series of that, but they keep delaying it because there's a danger when you have these big complex stories, especially how Martin writes with eight, nine hundred pages, crazy number of pages. Like you, you can't assume that. But anyway, I'm glad this this series happened. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just I'm just kind of laughing that you said necessarily because demonstrably not finished but your point is a good one they were dealing with a difficult situation and to compound that they storyboarded everything out they mapped everything out and they went to film and they figured out oh crap we don't have enough time and at that point they weren't big boy enough like they are now to just be like oh we're going to cut it by an episode or two they owed 10 one-hour episodes to hbo so a lot of these scenes you're going to talk about that do have this sort of butterfly effect of the story downstream were kind of created on the fly because they owed 10 episodes yeah. to HBO and they didn't have enough content. One thing I'll say that makes their hope, I mean, we can we can dismiss it as a fool's hope now, but the first three books of this series were written in like three years. They were written real quick. And so there was a hope among George R. R. Martin and the producers of the show that the next three books would be written as quickly. They were very, very wrong. <laughs> they had the best of intentions. They had the best of dreams about what, they, uh, George R. R. Martin would be capable of writing and the speed he'd be able to write at, but clearly whatever fire he had in his belly when he belted out uh, Game of Thrones, Clash of Kings, and so- A Storm of Swords, as dimmed. It is smoldering coals at this point, um, and as a result of that, the show outpassed it. But they didn't know that this time. As you said, they were in many ways trying to plot out different ways to uh, fill 10 hours, but they also were doing their own novel impressions of their characters. And we see that in some of these scenes of where characters are either portrayed remarkably differently or certain aspects of the character that are purposefully kept secondary or even secret in the books are given prominence. One of those main examples, and we both talked about this and we can talk about some more, is Cersei. Uh, If you were to describe Cersei in the books in a few words, how would you describe her as? And would paranoid be one of those words? Paranoid, overconfident, sociopath. Yeah, that that is Cersei. When her, when Tywin tells her you're not ha- you're not as smart as you think you are, he is calling that one right. Cersei in the books is a dangerous person, not because she is a brilliant tactical genius. It's because she is utterly paranoid, utterly vicious, and willing to do anything to maintain the foundation of her rule, most of the time warring against herself as she's getting wrapped up in this paranoia about anyone that isn't what she views as her. The Cersei that we're seeing in this episode, and this is a theme that keeps going here on after, is anything but that. We're seeing a Cersei with nuance. We're seeing a Cersei with a certain degree of perspective, not only herself, but those around her, and a willingness to compromise, even in dealing with that, that book Cersei would never be willing to do. We see that just even the early going about her relationship with Robert, that uh, show Cersei had a child by Robert, which messes up a few things about certain prophecies that we can talk about, uh, and tells him, and we seem to want to believe her in this moment, and Robert straight up believes her, that she loved him for a time, that she wanted to make things work, that even in the back of her head, she's kind of sort of still thinking that maybe this could have worked out for us. It's gone south, it's gone horrible, it's gone toxic. But there was a time of where at least she was trying. Book Cersei never, ever could even have fake said those lines to Robert, I don't think. 
Book Cersei, upon realizing that she might be pregnant with Robert, immediately aborted the baby. Book Cersei hated Robert from the first wedding night and never stopped hating him. Book Cersei will be consistent, differs from these initial moments in a vast gulf in a way it's almost hard to describe. And that's fine. They have their own unique portrayal for the character. But it sends the entire story in different ways as a result to accommodate it. If you're not portraying Cersei with nuance, if you're not portraying Cersei as a legitimately, in some ways, sympathetic character, you have to start moving a lot of her foul deeds to other people. Like in the show, next season, uh, a lot of Robert's bastards are murdered in King's Landing. Cersei pretty much explicitly says, that was Joffrey, I wouldn't have done it. I would protect my children. And the books, it's Cersei. It's straight Cersei, it's Cersei. It's, of course, Cersei. Cersei's absolutely willing to kill children that aren't her own. Um, And so you're moving, in some ways, a fair portion of her evil to Joffrey, who, as a result, in the books, he is, you know, a child. He is evil, but it's often a almost uh, almost pitiful kind of evil in terms of its impotence. In the show, he's just straight murdering prostitutes because you've moved a fair portion of the evil from Cersei to him. At the same time as well, you, as a result of making Cersei a more tactical person, uh, as a more capable person, a more understanding person, you're having to give justifications to a lot of her paranoias. You're having to make it that the, the various members of House Tyrell are actually conspiring against her. Not just the Queen of Thorns, who's conspiring apparently against everybody, but Marjorie, who in the books at least, may well be innocent a lot of a lot of what Cersei thinks that she's doing. It very much could be Cersei's paranoia. Whereas in the show, no, she's straight up a wheeler and dealer the same as everybody else because you no longer can betray Cersei as being illogically paranoid. She actually has to have these principled, logical, thought-out views. These kind of things spiral in different directions to the point when you get to the last season of where you're having to portray Tyrion as being a relatively incompetent consigliere and warmaster Because you've made Cersei his equal. You've made Cersei a person that can not only stand up to him, but continually outthink him. A position that would be ludicrous in the books, and even difficult to imagine, arguably, in the first season. But as a result of the ripples that you extend just from trying to make Cersei more sympathetic and more knowledgeable and more capable as an independent character than she otherwise portrays the books, you are sending out ripples that affect characters all around in ways that they probably couldn't even reasonably expect, to the point that otherwise good characters are deluded and weak and have very little to do because the person that you've now set up as their, now that you've set up Cersei as being a legitimate power player, you're having to leave the rest of them in the dust to make that logically work. You see this in other mild, Cersei is a good example of it. You see it in other ways with other characters too. I'm going to jump in. Please. I'm going to jump in. Uh, I don't think, I think, I like what you're doing here. You're saying, hey, man, when you make these small changes to a character, when you translate from the books to the show, it has downstream effects. It's not just in that scene. There are later effects. I would say that with Cersei in particular, I, I think that's a good point. But I do think with Cersei in particular, uh, the showrunners knew what they were doing all along. Oh, I don't so. think they got caught in a in a in a vortex, or they got they they kind of tripped themselves early on or up early on. They continued to push the Cersei character and humanize her and elevate her 
to a main character status that she's not necessarily in the books, uh, in part because they just have the actress Lena Headley. So I, I do give them a little bit of space here to say, I may have done something similar if I had that actress who was willing to continue to commit to the project. And, I, and, I, and before you rebut please. that, let's do one more uh, of these characters and then let's get to the parallels between the Tower of Joy because we're going on 40 minutes of book nerd bitching here. <laughs> I, and I would, I will, I will represent that I agree with you that what they've done with Cersei is still very compelling. From these very first episodes onward, Lena Headley kills the role. The plot lines they have for her are remarkable, and they've led to some of the best moments in the show that will probably never quite play out the same way in the books. They're unique to the show just because of how much they've invested in this character. It works. It's a story that they've clearly, as you said, plotted out from the beginning in terms of what they wanted to do with her. It's just as a result of it, to make it logically work, that things around the margins have had to fade away, which is one of the complaints we've had about the show in later seasons anyway, of where they now know very clearly what is their priority, what they want to represent. But to make those the focus, to make those work, everything else has faded away. And as a result of it, it's lost a certain degree of completeness of the world and lost a palpable sense of uncertainty and danger as a result of there being many power players, many capable individuals, individuals with weaknesses, individuals with faults, individuals who have fundamental defects that will prevent them from ever accomplishing their goals. When you now only have this very elite collection of characters that the focus of the writers, even if you very much well built up those moments, and like Cersei, see, at the end of season six, as she's building up to blowing up the Sept of Baelor, is some of the best television ever. It's incredible as they've built up to that moment that they've just completed her revenge all those who conspired against her. But it has left everybody else paling in comparison to accommodate that. Jamie in particular in terms of delaying his character growth by making it much more make it by making Cersei more reasonable and by making it more reasonable for him to stick with her rather than divorce the two of them from part of each other, which has delayed his character growth by like four seasons. Another example of this and the one that we'll just comment on as we've already discussed is uh, Loras and Renly. Uh they are gay in the books. That is there. A lot of people didn't, for some reason, didn't catch it when they read the books because it's not directly said because they can't. And neither of them are ever point of view characters. You're only ever seeing them through another lens. But it is part of who they are as part of their background. But it is very much only a part. The show has essentially introduced these two characters by the fact that they are closeted homosexual. That is the main thing we have learned about them so far. It is the main thing that has been, de been depicted. And by opening with that aspect of their character, the show ran a serious risk of what's called flanderization, which comes from Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, but is essentially a natural tendency by both writers and watchers to associate a single trait with a character. And as a result of that, that trait becomes all the characters ever depicted as going forward. It becomes the sole emphasis of how they are portrayed. And I feel like that the show, by starting with this moment, by making that subtext the text and the direct portrayal of the character, by showing Loras as being a wheeler and dealer in the same way as the rest of his family that he's not in the books, and by him trying to in many ways manipulate Renly through their relationship to get him to do what they want to do, that they set even... Loras more than Renly, on a path that led to a very well-nuanced, interesting, and legitimately sympathetic character. A, in some ways, young Jamie with all the potential and all the dangers uh, laid out before him. They set him down to the point that by, say, season three, pretty much the only thing you'll read about in online reviews is Marjorie's gay brother showed up in the same. 
And that is tragic and that is unfortunate, but they, by focusing on certain aspects and making those the focus of, their, of the character, they lost track of everything else that makes a well-rounded character and makes him distinct from otherwise the traits you're going to associate with your family. Focusing on certain traits when you're portraying characters, particularly on television, is useful. We use it in common life in terms of remembering key things for new watchers or for long-term watchers that are losing track of the details. But you need to be careful with what those initial traits are going to be, because if you focus on ones that aren't necessarily central to the character, you're going to lose track of everything that actually makes the character an interesting addition to the story. Yeah, I agree. I think with uh, Loris, um, a couple other things came into play. Mm-hmm. Is that I think their casting screwed it up because the guy they picked for Loris, it, like they tried for a couple seasons to pretend like he was a great swordsman. But first, I mean, when when the mountain attacks him, he just falls over. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the Loris Tyrell in the book, Loris Tyrell in the books could not handle the mountain one on one, but he wouldn't fall down and start whimpering. Uh, they just cast this little string bean guy that it wasn't realistic. And then also I think that they shifted some of the power um, and the, the the threat of the Tyrell family from Loris to Olenna. And a lot of that's because they had Diana Rick. Yeah. And she's just so good that you wanted her to be the matriarch, her to be the one driving everything and being the only strength uh, in this family other than Marjorie on the margins. He he. Um, but I, I think a lot of it's casting yeah. again, I, I fall back to the same thing I did with, with Cersei. I think they got these characters. Um, they kind of had an idea for them, but when they brought in the actors, they said, wow, man, we, yeah. we've got a string bean of a guy. We can't pretend like he's going to storm in and take Dragonstone like he does in the books. We think, uh, instead let's just make Olenna Tyrell, the general because Diana Rigg steals every scene she's in. I think they also in some ways wanted to introduce the, uh, Tyrell family before they became major players in the scene, before we got to meet Marjorie and Olenna by giving him essentially the same character traits we see in Marjorie. He's essentially in these scenes being a male Marjorie. He's being seductive. He's being manipulative. He's being a power player. He's trying to encourage, use another person as a means to an terms of political growth. And seemingly that's really how he feels about Renly, because unlike in the books, he's very content to jump into bed with other people later on and seemingly forget that Renly ever existed. You never even hear him talk about him again. Whereas one of the most heartwarming things in the books is Loris and Renly's relationship. Loris is legitimately destroyed by this. He literally murders a few people in his rage and anger and grief over what happens. He joins, unlike in the show, the uh, Kingsguard, partly because he never wants to have a relationship again. He is utterly devoted to Renly's memory. What his description is is that um, what what can a candle do when the sun is set? What can a candle represent or mean when the sun is set in terms of describing the idea of entering into a new relationship? And so by kind of just framing as being a traditional Tyrell and fitting in the mold of the more major ones they're introduced later, you lose a lot of what makes him unique and interesting and compelling. And even when you're presenting their relationship as text, you're losing a lot of the heart of it, which is interesting. Agreed. Okay, do we want to go to the final topic? Uh, just final quick reference. Making Ned an awesome sword fighter has an interesting effect on in terms of rippling with Jamie. in terms of, you know, now that you've made somebody able to stand up to Jamie, who's presumably the best in all of Westeros, everybody starts standing up to Jamie and defeating Jamie later. It almost becomes a joke. Uh, so that's just another example of maybe unintended consequence in terms of making another character and in, in, in interesting and compelling fashion stand up and prove himself to be a capable warrior but it has ripple effects that you can't even predict in terms of affecting another character that he's actually dealing with. But shall we move on to the brothel in the Tower of Joy before I keep on just yammering on? 
<laughs> yeah, let's hit it. Yeah. All right. Uh, should we run this one by committee or are we good? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we should just start throwing out. Okay, so at this point, uh, if you're listening to our coverage of season one and you haven't listened to our coverage of season seven, then you're not a real person because I'm pretty sure 100% of our audience listened to season seven first. We're doing season one mm-hmm. eight years after it premiered. So <laughs> we're going to assume that you have seen both of these scenes. Hopefully. This is where uh, Ned is attacked by Jamie Lannister after his wife takes Tyrion Lannister in season one. And when you have um, Ned and a few of his buddies after after the battle, um, of the Trident when Rhaegar Targaryen fell uh, go down to Dorne to get Lyanna Stark who they think is being held against her will in the Tower of Joy right. you've seen these two scenes Spencer let's me and you just rapid fire back and forth mm-hmm. about some of the things that were the same or were distinctly different like di- di- different in a way that you're like oh okay that that means something as opposed to like that door's white or that door's black right okay well uh, let's start with start with an obvious one here that uh, just in terms of the framing of the characters, we have Ned's distinctly smaller force, uh, four, as compared to, say, three in the Tower of Joy, arrayed against a large army of relatively faceless uh, Lannister troops, which befits Ned's memory of the event of his various companions being little more than shadows. With behind Ned, seemingly, you know, him, him and his troops standing in defense of it, being a royal bastard and uh, the uh, mistress that produced him. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, I'm going to say that, um, okay, I'm going to do kind of, kind of cheat because I'm going to kind of do two. Uh, one is I thought the acting was really good about how Ned is a swordsman. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like the actor who um, who portrayed Ned at the Tower of Joy had to have watched Sean Bean in season one because he holds this big sword and he kind of looks panicked all the time, even though <laughs> he's a really adept swordsman. I mean, he, he, he handles... Not handles, but he stays with Jamie Lannister when he's much older, uh, and he, you know, and he he deals with the sort of a morning uh, in a way that he was losing, but it was not in a way that was embarrassing. So he's a he's a very adept swordsman, but he he kind of looks like what you would expect a northern adept swordsman to be, right? Always kind of flailing, not not as. Um, not as uh, pristine or look like they've been trained as well, but also very confident. So he's very stark in that way. <laughs> Good reference. Uh, I, I would represent as well that uh, even the nature of the... Well, hold on. I was cheating. I was cheating. I was doing two. Okay. Um, the second one I'm going to point out in this is that despite the fact that Ned in season one is a very competent swordsman, might be one of the only people in the Seven Kingdoms who can hang with Jamie as long as he does, there was never any threat he was actually going to win this. Because there, like you pointed out, there's like 20 <laughs> Lannister soldiers around. So that's a little different, right, between the two. Where at least in the Tower of Joy, you had a sense of like, okay, well, this could actually go either way at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't get that in, in, in the uh, Attack on the Broad. Though in t- right, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, but in terms of how they even frame it on the show, it seems almost like they were directly trying to harken back to the scene. Because I said, this particular scene doesn't happen this way in the books, but the way they portrayed it on the show is directly drawing a parallel to certain aspects of how they later filmed The Tower of Joy, of where when Ned and Jamie are finally facing off, uh, quote-unquote, last two warriors, because everybody else is seemingly staying out of it, and everyone who actually entered the fight is now dead on the ground. Uh, Jamie was originally entering it with some degree of confidence and determination, but by the end of the fight, we commented on Jamie's lost a lot of his, you know, swaggering certainty in his own victory. He's now getting a little bit desperate that Ned might beat me right now. And Ned's starting to realize it too. He's actually smiling for the first time in the fight. And they've spaced out in this moment of where they've suddenly started to crystallize that Ned might win, that these 
paragon of no, of knightly virtue in terms of his image might lose in his noble quest of fighting off Ned, who's kidnapped his brother and everything else, which is, again, harkening in some ways back to the Tower of Joy there as well. Um, and in this moment, exactly as they filmed on the show, a guard comes out of nowhere and stabs the Incredible Swordsman in the back. And yeah. the Incredible Swordsman I agree. drops to the ground uh, before uh, the... <laughs> Oddly enough, Jamie Stark being in the Ned Stark equivalent for the Tower of Joy event. And the guy who was, you know, definitely in the Tower of Joy, but maybe in the the, the brothel attack, uh, you know, losing, uh, getting very frustrated or at least not approving of what the, the person did, the stabbing in the back or stabbing of the knee. Uh, now, Jamie, I think his reaction uh, showed me even more so. Um, that he felt like he was losing because he didn't, I, I, I felt like that character felt like he was losing on the cards. He wasn't out of the fight. And then one of his guys noticed that panicked a little bit and bailed him out. And that really hurt his pride. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas in the tower of joy, it's more like, well, Ned's certainly going to die. <laughs> and this is just sort of a, the last ditch effort to beat probably the greatest swordsman that we see in this series today. And, and just even as I just said before, another comparison is the fact that Jamie has ridden down from King's Landing, equivalent of, say, riding down to Dorne, for the purpose of trying to rescue a kidnapped sibling. If that's not a direct comparison to Ned riding down to Dorne to rescue his kidnapped sister, I'm not quite sure what is. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Now, um, I would also point out that both of these scenes had... Um, uh, swords, or somebody was battling with a sword slash swords, that uh, is not typical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that season one made great pains to show you just how large ice is. That's the ancestral sword of the Starks. It looks ridiculously big as Sean Bean is trying to wield this thing around. And then, of course, uh, the Sword of the Morning, um, they didn't have Dawn, uh, which is the ancestral sword of his house. Uh, and so they to show how great he was, what the show did is, is put two swords in his hand, which I thought was a pretty cool effect. But either way, this is an atypical sword fight. Yeah. And, um, we're, you know, talking about how brilliant we are in doing this, but one of the things to point out is that the books, Ned seemingly acknowledges the parallels between these scenes because immediately after he is injured and blacks out and is transported up to the Red Keep and given milk of the poppy, milk of the poppy to deal with the pain, this is the only moment we have currently in the books of where we get to see the Tower of Joy. He, in this kind of drugged dream, immediately after this incident, starts imagining the Tower of Joy and what went down there. And that's all we get to see of it in the books. So clearly, even Ned himself, seeing these events portrayed out, out, had a thought in the back of his head comparing the two. Otherwise, and this would just be very sad if it were true, he just apparently dreams every night about what happened on that particular event. (laughs) Yeah, probably a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Okay, anything else on the parallels between these two scenes? Uh, well, I would just even offer at the end, just even the sheer number of casualties that are on the ground, of where by the end of the fight, there are three dead on one side and six seemingly dead on the other, which represents what uh, seemingly was an event for Ned. If you count um, uh, how one Reed is being so badly injured, that he was practically on the ground at one point. Right, but not dead. So it doesn't quite check out, but it's close. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, well, Spencer, I did not grade uh, the last bill. I did not give you an update from the floor of Congress. That's because that bill's still being worked on in subcommittee because there is a lot more to talk about. 
uh, about the downstream effects of changing the characters from the books to the TV show. So uh, that's going to stay in committee. Uh, I'm not saying it's not going to pass, but we're going to work on that a little bit more in later episodes. This one uh, I participated in, I co-sponsored, and I am the head of the Senate, so obviously it passes. Both chambers goes to the president's desk for signature. Good job, Spencer. I, you know, I had no idea that I was dealing with the illustrious Senate pro tem when I was doing these kind of things. Yeah, majority leader. That's me. <laughs> All right, mate. Uh, well, that is my rounds of book nerd bitching for this. Had fun doing it. Uh, our hopes of doing a two-hour even episode were dashed with my excessive locationness, but uh, maybe next time. Uh, yeah. Anything else you want to talk about about this episode? No. Again, this episode was was interesting. Where I probably put it as being potentially the best episode of season one, or at least the best episode so far, despite the fact it had some weak scenes. I mean, it had scenes that were kind of not great, maybe even bad, arguably. But the quality of everything else and the quality of its best scenes is just almost beyond compare for the entire show. I agree. I'd also point out that I did my best King Bobby B impression of the season so far. Yeah, I know. I'm pretty great. Uh, So (laughs) let's shout out. Let's shout out some other Mangum Talks podcasts because we have a number of them and uh, we hope you'll check them out. So we've got Mangum Reads with BJ, Spencer, and my wife now, Sarah, has joined. She's doing Mangum Reads with you guys. We have um, Mangum Talks Hoops uh, and we actually have a special guest star coming to that next episode. Mm. Um, So stay tuned for that. We have Whiskey on the Weekends, my favorite podcast to do. We get together on the weekends. We talk, we drink, we laugh, we have fun. It's merriment all around. And then we have a forthcoming podcast. It's going to be Mangum Laughs with me and BJ, where we review stand-up comedy specials. I promise that's coming soon. For the GOT Got Questions podcast, we're going to continue our season one coverage. We love season one. We're having a blast doing this. The next one is season one, episode six, titled A Golden Crown. Spencer, I can't wait to do it with you. I'm looking forward to it, sir. Me too. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you. See you.